Hey everybody, you are listening to the We Are Rising podcast, your source for all things Rising and JMMA, news, features, reviews of fights, interviews, etc, etc. This is your host, Andrew Benjamin. Uh, Chris Gary is in parts unknown right now, hopefully he'll be joining us soon. But with us, we have Trashy Cole fan who will be talking the Ryzen 23 show that just happened this past Sunday at the, uh, excuse me, Monday at the Pier Arena MM in Yokohama, Japan. Uh, Trashy Cole fan, Luke, whatever you want to be called, thank you so much for talking uh, to us again. Uh, appreciate you uh, just giving your time to talk about all this, all this stuff that just went down. Yeah, my pleasure. I think, I think Christian might might have been. Um, I heard he might have uh, pirated the pay per view, might have streamed it, so they might have got caught up to him. You know, you know <laughs> doing that in twenty twenty. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Hopefully he turns up. I hope so too. I hope so too. Um, so uh, the first thing uh, I want to talk about before we go into the show, into the uh, nine fight show, is uh, so we recorded. Uh, before any announcement was made about how with this show would even be, how it could even be watched internationally, and so I think it was maybe the day I posted it, uh, our show, uh, the twenty three preview show. I think that's when Ryzen made that announcement about the Ryzen live streaming platform. So I just want to get from you, uh, what were your thoughts when you heard the announcement? Uh, the price as well, which was fifty dollars uh, for both shows, and just your experience with the streaming platform itself. Did you have any issues? Was there anything uh, that you liked or didn't like? Floor uh, is yours now. Okay, so I guess I'll probably work backwards in your question there and start with the end product and what we got on the platform on the day, which was, I mean. For me, it was it vastly outperformed my expectations in that the quality was basically flawless the whole way through, and as was the connection. So the entire show, which I think the broadcast for each one was about four and a half to five hours, basically had perfect broadcast clarity and connection to me, and I assume it's just for everybody else. Everybody else who I knew who I know bought it basically had the same experience, didn't have any complaints whatsoever about the connectivity, which was Aside from the price, probably people's biggest concern going in was the fact that they're trying this for the very first time on two events back-to-back with, you know, full international coverage on this platform. There was no, like, fight TV service that was going to take away traffic from this. It was all going to be focused on here. And there was a real concern among me and a lot of people that were like, well, this thing's just going to crash, isn't it? It's just going to break. It's not going to work. These things never do. It's very difficult to run and have your own streaming platform in this way. That's why services like Fight TV exist. Fight TV don't put on shows. They don't promote or, or do anything on the ground. They just do all the, the technical wet work to make sure that people can see your stuff at whatever price point that you work out with them. And that's their whole business model is sorting out all these issues mm-hmm. that Ryzen have now gone done by themselves. And at least so far as I can tell, uh, on a technical level, it's been pretty successful. The website's not amazingly designed. It's not. It doesn't feel um, user-friendly in the way that most websites and apps do nowadays. In that they're so, so goddamn simple and like clear with all the instructions and all the all the uh, the operations that they can do for you. That you know you'd have to you have to re- you almost try you have to try hard not to understand them nowadays. This one wasn't like that. It wasn't anywhere near as logical or clear in the way it was laid out. It was very simple, but it just wasn't very. Just in terms of like the uh, like the UI language that would have been taught to 
be fluent in through things like Twitter and Facebook and all the Apple stuff on iPhones and whatnot. It didn't really marry up with that, so it was kind of difficult to, to get my bearings. And of course, there's the English translation aspect of it and the fact that it wasn't a totally one-to-one fluent translation. It felt kind of like they'd gone through a, an app for that, like a Google Translate or whatever, so it wasn't, wasn't perfectly legible in, in all the different areas where you were reading information. But um, for a first time, like internet pay-per-view service, I was I was pretty impressed with what they were able to cook up on what felt like totally short notice, because of course the announcement and then the the, the actual shows themselves were so close together, it felt like they were working up up to the eleventh hour to try and get this stuff finished, and, and it came off. It, I think it came off by the standards of, of their industry, fairly professional, um, fairly competent which I think is a pretty big compliment in this kind of scenario, the fact that it didn't... People were really worried that like it was gonna, you were going to pay your money, your insane pay-per-view price, and then it was just going to break, and you were just going to get completely had. And that's not what happened, um, at least for most of us, as far as I can tell. I, I don't really have any complaints from, with it from a technical service standpoint. The other complaints that we can have, of course, are on the price, which, of course, is a huge problem, and going forward, that can't be what they are charging consistently every time. I don't think that's that's not sustainable. I don't think it's here or, of course, in Japan because that's they were paying the same price there as well. Don't think that's... I can't see the fan base standing for that. I think they got so much goodwill and, and a real grace period bought by the, the crowdfund and obviously like the massive difficulties that the business had run into this year like everybody else. And I think they bought themselves a certain amount of charity from a very charitable fan base to start with. A fan base that has just so much goodwill towards them and wants to see them win so badly that they have, you know, a lot more um, wiggle room with them than I think, I mean, any other fan base would in, the, in this space. Um, but I think this has used up all of that as far as its price points concerned. It can't continue on like that. It has to be brought down to a more reasonable level. You can't proposition fans to be getting the same product on a service that is no better than Fight TV and doesn't offer a replay for a vastly inflated price point going forward. I don't think that's justifiable um, to fans or even on, on like a business sense. I just, yeah, that, that's very difficult for me to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the main issue number one. And the, and the second issue, of course, is the communication and messaging to the fan base and keeping us totally up to date with what's going on and keeping us prepared and able to do what they want us to do. You know, they are, they should be selling to us and it feels like a lot of times we're selling to them and that we're trying to convince them that we're worthy of their attention and, um, Yes, please update us. Please give us information. Please keep us in the loop because we would like to like be involved with this, you know, which is kind of a messed up relationship. You think it should be really the other way around. They should be trying to get our attention. But this is the problem with, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating here based on a few conversations I've had with people um, in Japan and, and in, um, in the international fan base. I think they're like their PR comms department. I don't even think it's a department. I think it's just Shingo. <laughs> I really, really, I, 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 I honestly, just, just judging from like what I've, what I've heard from people and how much he's covering himself just as, as a one-man team here, one-man army, I really don't think they have as much capability or thought that's being put into the way that these decisions are being broadcast to people and the way that people are being informed in the way that like one FC or the UFC are. I think they have much larger, um, a much larger like corporate apparatus that's servicing that, which is a massive part of all public-facing corporations is you know keeping the public or keeping your um, your customers up to date with what's going on. I, don't, I think that's probably Ryzen's biggest single weakness as a promotion, is that they are understaffed. And that's just kind of 
that's not something you can really replicate or cover over. That's something that you have to have the staff for. You have to have the people who are trained to do that, working full time to give your business that element and that face and that ever presence and that clarity to everybody. You know, you can't, you can't, um, you can't fake that in any way. It's only done through that way, which is why you know companies like, you know, One FC or the UFC spend millions yearly on those departments, and why there are people that make you know lots of money doing that because it is a hugely important part of the business and Ryzen I think are very very lucky in that they can get away with it for a large part because they have a certain appeal to a certain demographic of people that will make that extra effort on their parts to make up for it you know they'll be doing their own homework and they'll invest way more time than it's really reasonable um, to inform themselves and inform others which is what we're doing here right now in, in a way um, than I think any other promotion could really expect. But for me, it still wasn't, even even though I was keeping very, very up-to-date, as up-to-date as I could, I still felt out of the loop. I still felt like there wasn't, this wasn't, didn't feel like a sure bet until I woke up that morning and watched the show itself, you know, which I don't want to be in that position. I don't like it. It's, uh, it sucks because it, it feels like, um, it just feels like I'm, I'm putting in more, like, stress and energy into this thing than... I think is reasonable for any any even even a paying fan. I don't think I don't think it's fair on us. Um, maybe that's maybe that's on me. You know, maybe I need to kind of reevaluate um, how much attention I, I I pay to it in the run up. You know, that's something I'll think about for sure. Especially going forward to see how they handle the next show, which seems to be that's going to be late September, location undetermined. But that's what all the all the word coming out is. Mm. Um, I guess we'll yeah we'll have to we'll have to see how that show's promoted. We'll see what the build-up's like. Um, we'll see what kind of information we get. But um, yeah, so so going into this, this felt I, I can remember from our last podcast and the conversation we had around it was almost entirely negative. And coming out of it, it's mixed, which is an upgrade, which is an improvement. Still not great, but there are certain aspects of it that I think we have more of an idea of now. We have more of a clear expectation going forward with now, which is good. So we know that this platform works at the point of service, which is, you know, something that we weren't sure of whatsoever, let alone before the announcement, but after the announcement as well, because, you know, it was put up and then it wasn't even functional for English language um, users. And then, you know, you had, you had to log in and buy it on the day of the event. You couldn't do it in advance. Mm-hmm. Just a whole load of just very, very weird, unfortunate developments brought about through the fact that yeah, Rising Art understaffed for the for the for the for the size of audience that they have, they should be a lot bigger on the ground. I think that's incontrovertibly true at this point. The millions of people that watch in Japan, thousands that watch around the world outside of Japan, and for them to be running a staff as small as they are without like a legitimate um, broadcast department at this point since they're doing their own broadcast they're running their own broadcast this isn't a fuji tv show this wasn't fight tv flying out commentators for it this was all them um i think that's what we need to see going forward if we want to see an improved service for us the fans um are we going to get that doubt it, doubt <laughs> it. especially now in this, in this economic you know turmoil i don't think they're going to be hiring or expanding um the staff unfortunately but for me that's the, the, the sing, that's the single only real solution to, to the main problem we had coming into this, which was lack of information. That's what I would like to see change going forward, along with the price, obviously. But that's such like an obvious point that I think 
that's something that I think we all know will change anyway, just because the state of play as of right now, we know that's not sustainable for any, for the domestic fan base or the international fan base. So we can be reasonably confident in our assumption that's going to change. The other assumption about them expanding their just capabilities as, as a business day to day, yeah, I, I don't feel confident in that, unfortunately. But I'd love to see it. Um, it the price thing is interesting because I know when we talked to Fight Pros the other day, he thinks that they're going to lower the price. I don't think so. I Very rarely do prices ever get lowered when it comes to just usually anything in general. I mean, we're, it looks like the next-gen video games are going to be priced $10 more. We got the UFC raising, the, well, I guess ESPN raising the price of ESPN Plus uh, for their subservice. Um, I don't see this price going down at all. I see it's staying at $50 or 50 American dollars or 5,500 yen, whatever it is. And do you, what do you think? Do you think that they're going to, that they will lower this price or do you think it's just going to stay the same, uh, for this, for the foreseeable future? I wonder if they will lower it to a higher point than it was originally in so in the long term, they raise the price, but in the short term, it looks like they lower it. So let's say the Fight TV pay-per-view, what was it before? It was in 1999, I want to say? Yeah, it was 1999, and I think it went up to 29.99 for, I think it was the New Year's, I think the Ryzen 21 New Year's Eve show, Ryzen, excuse me, Ryzen 20 New Year's Eve show, I think that was 29.99. Okay, so yeah, I, I could totally see them. Just going to check Fight TV right now, but I, I can totally see them um, doing a reduction from the $50 price point and bringing it down to a 30 or a 40. Don't think it's going to be as low as it used to be in like you know the golden age. <laughs> so Rising Rising 20 and 21 were both 1999 for me on site. I'm not sure if it was different in America. Um, I'm also so, I, I would buy I have so many Fight TV credits that I don't even know what the original price of these things were because it never matters to me because I just had so many Fight TV credits. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going down the, the price point now. The most expensive one they've ever done was Ryzen 14, the Mayweather show. That was twenty four ninety nine. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, I think that was Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they obviously raised that price because it was, you know, a massive international celebrity. Yeah. But since then, it's been around consistently nineteen ninety nine on my end. I could totally see it being reduced, quote-unquote, to twenty nine ninety nine, for instance, which would mean, in the real long term, an increase. But in the short term, from this, this is this is my optimistic uh, interpretation. I've, we've got no idea. I just don't think that because we look at it from the perspective of international fans, like we were being charged that out of the ordinary for us. It was out of the ordinary for the domestic fans too. Oh, yeah. We were only being charged that because they were as well. And for Ryzen to charge them more and us less would have been a real kind of messed up almost grading of, the, of their fan base as they know that the Japanese fans are so much more desperate in large numbers than we are that they could exploit them harder. Mm -hmm. um, we got treated with the same brush that they did. So I think, I mean, yeah, it really depends what the domestic fan base is willing to put up with. They are a much larger contributor to Ryzen's business. They're a much larger group of people. They have much more direct lines of communication with the organization and the people that work there. No language barrier, etc. Um, they actually show up to the events. They talk to the fighters. They talk to the staff, etc. So whatever they want, I think is really going to have a much bigger influence than any other group. Um, and I talked with a few Japanese fans. They weren't happy with the price either. So 
it was an issue there as it was for us. I think for us it was just more of an issue because um, the the service wasn't you know advertised to us anywhere near as clearly, and of course we didn't get a replay, which means for people who aren't in the right time zone, it loses a lot of its value. So a lot of people that would buy the pay per view and then watch it the day after or the morning after, quote unquote, without which without spoilers. So yeah, I think. I, I think you both could be right, totally. I, I, I don't um, I don't have any real confidence either way. I'm hoping that my, my, my best case scenario, I don't think back to the original price, it's never going to happen. Um, I, my best case scenario is that we get a lowered raised price, if you will. So something that was higher than it was originally, but hopefully substantially lower than it was for these two shows. Because mm-hmm. this is crazy. I mean, yeah, that's not... Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think any other organization could even try and get away with it once, let alone twice. You know, one of the things we uh, we also talked about when Fright Pros, we had him on, was that, I, you know, um, one of our one of our good buddies, um, listeners, uh, Joseph Mathos, uh, made a point that, you know, why, why is it that uh, UFC never gets this sort of scrutiny when it comes to the high prices of their, I mean, remember, they, I think they raised their prices for the pay-per-views, was it, was it this year or last year? I'm trying to remember. I think they do it every year, don't they? Don't they raise it for like five dollars every year or, or something nuts? Well, was it wasn't it the um? Was it McGregor Khabib? Right, they they raised it from like yeah, but they, but they the, do it like a big. They did like sixty five dollars for that one or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think so. And the th- the problem is, I think that Rise is not in a position where they can ask for such a high price. They are at a level. They are not. You know, since UFC is obviously number one, they can. They can they can dictate the marketplace price for anything, and yes. nobody nobody can complain because they're number one in the marketplace internationally yeah. in Amer- America, Europe, everywhere. Verizon yeah. does not have that luxury. They no, they don't. They operate in out of fan goodwill because yeah. if fans don't want to pay their prices, they'll just go watch UFC every week. It's very very easy to lose those customers. Well, to and, a, and same thing with these shows. I had a number of people message me saying, you know, this this price is too high. It's, I'm not watching either show, and we even had a poll, you know, yeah. that you know, fan, uh, eighty-six people responded, and the majority response was that, was that nobody was going to buy either show. Yeah, yeah, that's what they did. That's the that's the path they chose. I mean, and it is. I do agree that is a conversation that needs to happen because I think I, I I'm, I'm not sure who I talked to about it, but I did. I think I sent you a message. Yeah about just wondering, because of course I've never paid for a UFC pay-per-view because UFC isn't a pay-per-view product yeah. in my territory. But I've always been stunned by the kind of pricing that they've had as a default for years and years and years. I mean, just $60 for uh, like a... a and, and the crazy thing about the UFC is when you buy that pay-per-view, you only get the main card. You only get the last five fights. You don't yeah. get the six, seven fights on the undercard. So at least with Ryzen you were getting, on, on that pay-per-view, you were getting the whole card. Although, they almost kind of undercut their own product in a way when they gave away four fights. I mean, that's something that we didn't see coming yeah. until the last minute was the four, that's, honestly, that's a major talk. I was going to ask you, point I missed. was, was yeah. that a good thing? So they th- gave away yeah. four fights for each card for free at the start. Each card was only like eight or nine fights. Yeah. So they gave away half the show for free um, immediately, which I thought was wild. I thought it was good. Because, you know, they're, they're, I think that's almost like an olive branch to people. Like, yeah, we know how crazy this price is. We're not going to totally lock you out. Here's, here's some content for free. And those are some really, really good fights on, on that first portion of the card on both shows. And actually, I heard some show. lucky people got to see beyond the four fights on the first show, at least. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, 
like, yeah, I know the broadcast I was hearing from people afterwards was like you would they, it would come back and then it would cut out just for the fights like right at the first bell and then it would come back again it's just like you're getting most of the product anyway outside of that so it wasn't wasn't even that severe i don't think but yeah get, uh, the giveaway that they did the last minute thing of them showing the first four fights for each show for free wild like i did not expect that whatsoever it didn't change my perspective all that much because i was i'd already bought the shows but um yeah crazy uh i can see i can see them doing that going forward what would you say the stream oh. held up didn't it maybe it was like a stress test of the stream yeah because way more people would watch for free than would watch paid so if, if, if they knew it would hold up during the free portion they knew they were good for the rest of the weekend what would you say to a tiered uh system or like let's say new year's eve let's say if they have an, their side of a show for new year's eve they price at 50 dollars but then maybe like a show like a ryzen 22 type show maybe at a lower price, kind of just tiered based on the, I guess, the size or the expectations show. Is that something you would be okay with, or should there just be one set price for every show? Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Um, promoters are generally very, very reluctant to do that because they hate the idea of tiering their content in that way. I mean, people have asked for the UFC to do it for years because... Pay-per-view card quality in the UFC fluctuates so wildly. You will get ones where you'll get three title fights and two really, really good top rank fights, and then you'll get some that are just duds, mm. just not even good title fights, and then just fill up, just complete trash, and they'll be charged at exactly the same rate, which is which is wild. Um, but again, UFC World, it's not really the fights that are selling there. It's the three letters. It's the brand. That's what's selling for the most part, so they can get away with it in that way. I'd be interested to see Ryzen, Ryzen try that. That's an interesting thought experiment. So you would have, um, at least this is the calendar that they would work with before all the shutdowns. They would do, I think, they would do a Saitama show every July and then two in December. And then they would do sort of major-ish shows, like 10,000 people in like Fukuoka or Yokohama. And then you would have the smaller ones, um, which would be, they would go all over the place for that, wouldn't they? Um, so you, know, you already have three tiers of shows as far as Ryzen were concerned on attendance level. So if you extrapolate that structure out to the pay-per-view, um, yeah, that could be interesting because, I mean, like, like we said, the Fight TV pricing, aside from the Mayweather event, was basically flat for, I'm looking right now at my history, July 30th, 2017, uh, the World Grand Prix 2017 summer event, 1999. February 17th, 2020, Ryzen 21, 1999. So it's basically flat the whole way there. Um, mm. I assume it was in Japan as well. So, it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing to, to try going forward. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, I'm sure there are, like, economists and number crunchers that have, like, observed how those models have been deployed in other areas and seen maybe um, what effect that had on bottom lines, which are really the, ultimately the only thing that matters here. So I guess they're hoping that if they put on a cheaper show, way more people in vast numbers will buy it to make up for the fact that they have to slash the price by like, you know, half. So if you slash a price in half, you're hoping that's going to do double the buy rate, which is pretty significant. That's a huge jump in numbers. You know, if you, if you slash a show price in half and you only do, let's say, um, the buy rate plus 25%, you've lost a load of money. You've lost 75% potential on your 100% revenue gain by doing it at normal pricing. So it's a big, big gamble, which I think is why so many promoters don't like doing it. Especially because if, they, if it does mess up and it does fail, then they have to tell everyone, well, we're raising the price again, which nobody likes to do. That's, you know, it's obviously a very bad thing, like PR-wise, to tell fans 
Um, yeah, mm. I, I don't think it's going to happen just because it's so it's such a rarity in their space. But that would be interesting. I'd be interested to see how they do that. Now, also, as somebody who knows a lot more about computers than I do, uh, and this is something we, uh, I did not see talked about, but maybe you can uh, you you would have more knowledge about it. Was the was the website secure? Because I have a whole bunch of security things on my apps on, on my on my laptop, and it was telling me that the web that the Ryzen Live website had only one level of certification from Amazon. Did you happen to notice anything like that, or is I, or, yeah? Do you know anything that you can uh, speak on about that since you know a lot about computers? So the only like level of security that I'm aware of that they had was something that um, a Twitter Jacob guy tweeted, um, Apparatus Flatus, about the, <laughs> the encoding of the video stream itself, which was a, a Vimeo stream, which I noticed immediately just because of the uh, yeah. the UI that popped up, the play and, and the timelines. Like, oh, that's Vimeo. I've, I've seen Vimeo before. That's what they're doing. And apparently that's actually a pretty robust um, like video encode as far as keeping it secure so it can't be hijacked and it isn't vulnerable to attacks. Mm. Apart from that, I have absolutely no um, knowledge as to how secure the website itself was when it comes to um, the data that obviously it now holds with everybody's um, credit card information. Um, I'll see what happens on my bank statement. You know, if it comes back and someone's bought something for you know eight thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars that it wasn't me, I guess we'll, we'll have our answer. <laughs> Somebody buys uh, like I don't know otaku anime, and you're, you're like. Wait, wh why is Yuri on ice? Why do I have 8,000? Uh, yeah, charge, yeah, yeah. charge for 8,000 for Yuri on ice, baby. My Hero Academia uh, body pillow. <laughs> like, I, uh, custom built. That'll be a very awkward phone conversation with the bank. But, yeah, I guess we'll find out. I've, I've really got no real insight into that. Okay. Okay, but um, uh, yeah, so that's that's our thoughts on the uh, on the whole Ryzen streaming and all that stuff. Um. Now, before we go into the show, uh, I'm just going to say as well that the Ryzen 23 show drew very well, 4,410 out of 5,000, uh, which was the maximum they were allowed to have due to Corona regulations, uh, up significantly from Ryzen 22, which had about only 2,200 people. Um, do you think the, what do you, uh, just uh, briefly, what do you think about the two differences in the, I don't know if you saw the numbers, but they of the two Ryzen uh, shows, were they, were you just not surprised that like, yeah, 23 out June 22 just because it was a bigger, a better card on paper? Yeah, no, that, that, it, it was definitely a bigger card, um, that stronger card on paper. I think one thing that would interest me is to look at how many of those 2200 on the first show also went to the second. If they were like the real, real, real hardcores that went mm -hmm. to both shows. Or, which is why they went to Ryzen 22 as well, which was on name value far, far beneath 23. Maybe that's why that it got, that was like the core fan base, and then the 23 were the people who were brought in by, you know, Kaya Sakura, who's, you know, a very big name, and that appeal. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's vet, like, oh yeah, I mean, 40, 4,400 tickets sold out of 5,000 um, that were offered, and the ticket prices were also way higher than normal, weren't they, along yeah. with the pay-per-view. Yeah, and also it was so, a Monday. It was a Monday in Japan as well. Yes, yes, you're right. Yeah, it was a weekday. So, yeah, that's yeah, that, that's a very very strong strong showing. Um, yeah, not surprised at all that it did a lot a lot stronger than the first show. Mm. 
Uh, and uh, uh, just quickly before we go into the card, we have a question from Jack Wanon. At Jack Wanon, uh, who, uh, as you may remember, interviewed us for his uh, article uh, for the uh, about the uh, Ryzen uh, streaming and all that stuff. He asks, uh, is there a name, within reason, that you feel was left off the 22 and 23 cards? Um, any thoughts to that, uh, Luke? I think the one that jumped out to me when I read that question was the guy who'd been asking on Twitter, it seemed like every other day for a fight on the card, which is uh, Kintaro, the new bantamweight um, guy that they had brought in mm -hmm. on the Hamamatsu show in February. He's very popular. As a, he has like a big social media following, a big uh, YouTube channel. Um, he'd been asking just constantly for a fight on this card. He didn't get one. People were wondering if it was because of budget constraints, that because of his stardom um, relative to most of the people who are on the either card, who is going to be uh, like you know asking for a bigger purse than Ryzen could afford on, on such a tight um, monetary uh, monetary menu that they're offering from right now. So maybe that's why I wasn't got on there. But I think like. Um, Stylistically, a fight with him in full swing would have been probably a lot more action-packed than the fight with full swing and Matoya ended up being. Yeah. Which I didn't. I didn't hate the fight because I kind of expected that. But um, as it played out, but I think yeah, him and full swing would have been stylistically uh, dynamite. Guitar yeah. is a very kind of you know uh, aggressive, physical fighter, and he would have and full swing would have you know had ample opportunity to land that uh, that home run on him. So I think that would have been very fun. Um, but yeah, he's the guy whose name popped up to me when I saw that question. It's like, yeah, he, he really made a lot of sense for this show. Uh, either, with these, either of these shows, and he's just done the promotion. He's got a bit of momentum behind him. And yeah, it's unfortunate he wasn't on there. But hopefully he'll be on the, uh, the next one. I think he definitely will. Any, uh, any brief thoughts on Ryzen 22 before we go into 23? Any takeaways that you want to say about uh, 22? Yeah, I think on in, in how it lacked for maybe name value and real marquee matchups, I think 22 might have been the more entertaining show on a fight-by-fight -fight basis. Mm -hmm. Every single fight on the card ended in a finish, aside from the kickboxing bout between Ueyama and Ibata, which was a good fight. Uh, Ueyama got dropped, both guys got busted up, you know, they, they had a good scrap, so it wasn't as though that was a snoozer. Every other fight on the card was a finish, which is really, really I mean, that's great. I don't think that can ever really be bad when you have an entire show that just finishes like that. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the show a lot. I, I was like, yes, this is just, this is exactly what it does. The product, it delivers every single time on, on this front. When you get there, you have, to, you have to crawl up a mountain of broken glass to get there. But when you get there, you get what you ask for every single time. You know, it's, it's very rare that a show in full lets you down in that way. So, yeah, I enjoyed 22 a lot. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, there's, there's, I mean, I'm sure you... Are you guys going to talk to Fight Pros again about that card? Uh, we talked to him already, yeah. Um, oh, you did, you talked to him. Oh, there's that a lot to take away from it. There's a ton of stuff that came out of that. Yeah. Where certain fighters, like I think Naoki Inoue's performance really established him as almost, I think, him along with um, Victor Henry as like the two surging contenders at Bantamweight right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Nadaka's performance, the Muay Thai kid against Yushin, like just such just complete disdain and brutality in that performance. I was so, so happy that he came. He really showed out. And he didn't come to just shave points and win around and, and get out of there. You know, he came to, he knew he was levels above this guy and he destroyed him. And I saw a ton of people that were very impressed. I've been telling, everybody had been talking about him coming into the show already because he was such a high level guy coming in from Muay Thai. And I made an effort 
in our previous podcast that wasn't even about this card to specifically mention him by name because kid's a special, special talent. He's 19 years old. He's already reached the top in Muay Thai in his weight division. He's won both major stadium titles. Kickboxing, going forward, I'm still not sure because his weight is so far below where even the lower J-Kick weights are. Like J-Kick, as far as the male divisions, bottoms out at 53 kg. And he's fighting, I think, a, I want to say seven or eight pounds below that. So he's got a lot, but he's still growing. He's very young. He can definitely put on mass. That's, I think he'll definitely hit 53 kg by the time he retires, for sure. I'm just thinking in the short term, um, I think as long as the travel bans and, and, and the restrictions between Japan and Thailand are up, I have no problem seeing him come back and destroying another guy on the, on the next Rising show. Uh, the guy, he's so watchable. He's so skilled, like the throws and everything. It's such an original flavor for the Ryzen cards that have all been MMA or kickboxing. Um, he's got that Muay Thai element, and he's so skilled in that area that you really just see a different. He's got the elbow. I mean, the elbows as well were just just horrifying. Um, yeah, fantastic. Really, 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 really glad he showed out in that way. Definitely want to see him back. Him back. He was he was one of the big takeaways for me from that whole show. Do you want to see him versus Tension as he did challenge Tension after the match? Yeah, to me that's that's. That's so absurd. Like, obviously, the names are there, and any any like young Japanese fighter in, in that even vague vicinity is going to be one intention because he's he's the big name, he's the money man. Uh, tension right now is fighting at like what, like 58, 57 kg. Mm-hmm. He's literally fighting nearly like 15 pounds above Nadaka. Like, I yeah, no, I think by the time Nadaka reaches the weight limit that Tension's at, Tension would have probably already retired. Might so be even more at this point. Could be even. I think it's twenty. I think it's around twenty. Maybe even at this point, twenty-five. I saw a picture of tension. He looked much more muscular. I could be wrong though. Yeah. I'm just, just going by no, the no. eye test. No, no. But yeah, I, I, I totally. I, I can t- definitely see that. Um, yeah, the, the weight, the weight. And I'm, I know. So actually, Drake fan has been wanting to see this fight for God knows what reason because it would be an absolute, just complete shit housing. It would be what Mayweather did detention to Nadaka. It would. Yeah, it would really be. It would be just entirely non-competitive. I've got no interest in seeing that go down in the ring. Because I think too highly of Nadaka, and I think his potential is too good to waste in a, in the kind of like a mean matchup like that, where yeah. he gets obliterated. So I like, that he's, I like that he's being mentioned alongside Tension, because Tension's name is so massive, and his pull, and his attention that he gets is so massive, that to just be talked about along, alongside with him is really, really good for Nadaka's brand on that mm-hmm. and I think going forward um, yeah I don't see any any realistic world in, in which that fight takes place but I don't think it even matters as far as who Nadak is going to fight in Ryzen unless they're going to do unless they're going to go really far out and get one of the top Muay Thai guys in and do like a proper five round Muay Thai Bumpini Rajadanan Stadium title fight in Ryzen that would be very cool because the Lumpini and Rajadanam Stadium belts have been defended in Japan before, multiple times. If the stadium or, or the commissioner, whoever has jurisdiction over those titles, gives their go-ahead and the referees and the judges and the officials are official and accredited excuse me, accredited for that level of competition, I'd love to see it on a rising show just because it, it kind of just it expands the flavor of what we see in rising even further. And it would be a very, very high-level matchup because those titles they're booked very, very strongly. They're not like world titles in boxing, where the ranking systems are basically just gamed by promoters who want to push guys up there, and they're mostly full of crap. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the boxing sanctioning bodies just exist to take money out of the mouths of fighters. 
and take percentages of their purses for sanctioning fees. That is how they make their money. That is their business model. So they'll sign off on anything if it just gets their world title defended. It doesn't matter who it's against. It doesn't matter how good they are. Whereas the, the two major titles in Muay Thai, very, very seldom do you see people not deserving of being in those title fights in those title fights. It's booked very strongly. So if that kind of fight happens in Japan at all or in Ryzen, it's going to be between Nadaka and a serious contender, an elite-level fighter in his weight class. And I think just any kind of bout of that quality um, is 100% worthy of having its full full five rounds played out on what is mostly going to be an MMA show. Mm. I think it warrants it. I'd love to see it. Um, do, are we going to see it? I don't know. It depends how much effort Ryzen really want to put in into um, establishing Nadaka as like a real singular name in their brand, in the way that kind of Tension is. Like Tension's uh, little roster of guys that he's fought in Rising, you see them get brought back afterwards. They get kind of they get so much rub from being demolished by him <laughs> that they actually have a, a, a kind of promotional half-life of their own after the fact. Yeah. And I do wonder if Nadaka almost, if Ryzen really, really do believe in him, he's going to have a similar momentum within the organization and they're really going to start to focus attention around him. Um, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see a proper like five-round Muay Thai title fight with uh, Nadaka against one of the top guys. Uh, I think he was at 108. He's now moved up to 112, which is a stacked weight division in Thailand. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some serious, serious contenders there that I think are just, yeah, that, that's a ton of like quality in that division. And if Ryzen would put on a title fight with him... Um, but again, yeah, I think you brought up the issue of just just people to fight. I guess if they before if that fight were to happen, just maybe any like an in between fight because with most of the one twelve people, I'm guessing in kickboxing that are in Japan as of right now uh, are either with K one, which already locks them up, and I don't think even Rise. I don't think Rise's division even goes that low, and if they do, there's probably very little fighters for Rise because probably they're all already K one. Um, there's probably a whole bunch at the local level, but as we talked about, we talked about it with uh, Fight Pros, was that Nadaka's at such a level, it's like tension, he's such a level above, above anybody else, that putting him against, you know, someone who's with New Japan Kickboxing Federation, or, uh, it, it would almost, it's, it's, it's basically, you're just uh, signing away for a squash match. At this point, the only viable people he can maybe fight are, are MMA fighters at that weight class who are interested in doing kickboxing. Yeah, I mean, so 112 pounds. So that's just below strawweight in MMA. And there is a male strawweight division in MMA. It's yeah. very sparsely populated. I think there are three guys that I know of in there. There's Haro Ochi, mm-hmm. who fought the other guy, Mitsuhisa Tsunabe, and then fought the other guy, Jared Brooks, yeah. all on Rising shows. Yeah. I think that's the entire division as far as males at 115 pounds. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. That's the problem where Nadaka's at is his weight division, as far as his rule set, exists only in Thailand at a meaningful level. And as far as kickboxing rules, doesn't go that low. 53 kg is the lowest that K1 and Rise go. He fights at 50 kg. Okay. So you're talking like a, a pretty almost 10 pound gap there below where the lowest they go are. Um, it's just kind of a difficult thing if you're looking for real meaningful matches for him in Ryzen in Japan. I don't think we're going to see them. I think we're going to see him destroy guys, which I'm honestly fine with, to be honest with you. He's so young mm-hmm. and his style's so watchable. Line them up, man. I'll have them fight every week. It's not good. Great, great. So let's talk about this Rise of 23 card. We're going to start off with the first match, which, ironically enough, was a kickboxing match. 
uh, Shintal Matsukura defeated Koji Mori by right hook TKO, well, knockout, I'll say one minute, uh, 28 seconds of round one, and doing try hard Jim proud, uh, unlike what we'll talk about later. And, um, yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on, on this opening kickboxing fight. Uh, what do you think about it? What were your impressions of uh, Matsukura and Mori? And, uh, yeah, any other thoughts you had about the fight, Luke? I mean, it was about what we expected, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. We all saw this going in. It was a legitimate title-level contender kickboxer against an MMA guy. And Mori gave it a decent go. He came forward aggressively, but... Once they got into any kind of real exchange, he just got he just got smashed a bit, really. Um, mm. You know, Matsukura's legit. He's fought for legit titles. Um, he only loses to really, really solid guys. He doesn't go. He doesn't get blown up by nobodies. You know, um, this is basically exactly what it was sold as and what we saw going in. Um, as far as futures for the guy in the promotion, not really sure to be honest with you. Matsukura, like we said going in, is is at seventy kg, which in Japan is not a very strong division for kickboxing. Um, Especially outside of K1, where mm. even within K1, it's not fantastically strong anyway. I mean, um, Philip Kimura just won a, a one-night tournament for the for the K1 70kg title, and he didn't really beat anyone amazing to do it. And now he's the K1 champion. He's yeah. the number one guy in Japan, uh, supposedly, at that weight class. So it's not really, um, yeah, there's not really a lot of talent that you'd really be excited to see take up a slot on a rising show. As a 70 kg kickboxing match with uh, Matsukura in it, so it was fine for what it was. Um, it was what we expected. No surprises. Nice sort of knockout. Don't really see much future with either guy in the promotion as mm. far as kickboxing goes. I assume Matsukura will, will um, continue with where he's been at, which is Rise. Mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll continue to give him fights. Yeah, I was about, so I was about to, yeah, you know, we always do uh, if somebody's rising worthy, which is to bring them back. 2020 is a unique year, though. So, I don't know. Do you think just because of the way at the year, uh, with what's going on, and uh, currently with the, we don't know what's going to happen with foreigners coming in at this point, I don't think it's going to be by September uh, at all. Uh, I don't. Uh, I think it'll probably be by the end of the year. Do you, uh, based what's going on and all that stuff, do you think they would bring them back, you know, just to fill up the card, you know? for uh, Well, I guess in the Maury's case, you could also maybe have him in an MMA fight since he is an MMA fighter by trade. Um, you think that could be at all possible? Um, and I think yeah, he fights at around, exactly. I think he fights at 145 or 155, if I remember correctly. Is this Maury? Yes, Maury, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, those weight limits, are, there's a ton of guys there. Um, but again, Ryzen clearly didn't think much of him as an MMA fighter because they fed him to a kickboxer. So I don't know um, if there's really any future with him. Could we see it? For sure. Like you say, man, 2020. Um, I totally agree that if we do see a show in late September, it's going to be all domestic matchups again. We're not seeing anybody being flown in for those shows. Um, I'd, be, I'd be stunned if we did. So, um, yeah, I mean, don't, don't rule it out, like you said. But for me, I'm not really anticipating anything. I'm not... I'm not really seeing a clear path for either guy. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see Matsukura back. They love the try-hard guys. Ryzen loves try-hard and crazy B, um, for better or for worse. Uh, so I'm pretty sure we'll see Matsukura back. As for his opponent, you know, not really, you know, like you said, not too much competition. So probably he'll get another MMA fighter uh, wanting the moonlight as a kickboxer. 
Um, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but we did all, we all did pick uh, Mori, I mean, excuse me, not Mori, Matsukaro to win, you know, because it's obvious that that was going to happen. Uh, what did you think of the knockout, though? Like, wasn't that, that was one of the most brutal knockouts, and I think in one in a non-tension kickboxing match. He just, when, when he got, he, his head just, Mori's head just kind of just, like, reverberated, and he just fell face first into the ring, I believe, onto the ring rope. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said, I think, about the way that MMA fighters kickbox and that they're so not used to operating behind any kind of, like, earbuds guard because it's so not useful in MMA because you're essentially wearing no gloves in MMA. You're wearing yeah. coverings on your hands, but that's it. Whereas in kickboxing, you know, a lot they have a lot more um, nouse and knack for using the high guard to protect themselves in that way. But when MMA fighters go in there, they're just so open in exchanges that they'll just get, yeah, they'll just get blasted, which is what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if it was you who mentioned also, uh, may have been you, but uh, someone mentioned that Mori looked uh, big and thick, like he had just come from the buffet table. Yeah, well, um, he went into the slaughterhouse. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, let's go on to the next match, which was the first MMA match of the night. Uh, Tatsuki Saomoto defeated... Yusuku Nakamura, uh, knockout left hook, four minutes, six seconds into round one. Uh, it's a 128-pound match. Uh, Samoto become, is now 15-2. and two. Uh, Nakamura is 16-8 and eight now. And I know people love Nakamura because of his smile. Seems to be, has a very congenial, congenial personality. But uh, I don't know. What do you think about Nakamura at this point? He just seems to be... Kind of like an, an, an MMA jobber now. Oh, for sure. I think, I think, yes, he lost. Yes, he got knocked out. Yes, he'll be 100% brought back because he did his job. Which is not to say that he jobbed in the professional wrestling sense and that he gave up the win. Yeah. But he he was he fought a top prospect, which Salmoto is, and we all knew going in. I mean, one of the best prospects probably in the world, I think, at flyweight. Um for a guy that's you know not really broken out on the international scene yet, and I think I think I I was kind of impressed with what Nakamura was doing early on. I thought he was giving Salamoto some some really really tough looks, and he was landing straight punches. He looked loose. He looked pretty sharp, um, and he he was he was frustrating the takedowns and, and landing clean shots. And really clearly, I think getting the better of Salamoto on the feet yeah. until. Salamoto does the kind of thing that only crazy athletes can do, and that's just he unloaded with an incredibly fast, hard power shot and just ended the fight, which is something that, you know, if you're an athlete of his of his caliber, you can get yourself out of what was looking like a pretty sticky situation, which was that first round, by just exploding and doing something wild like that. So that's what happened. Um, he's still a top prospect. It was his big rising debut, so I'm not going to hold... and. and Nakamura is a pretty unorthodox striker and probably for just his ability quite a bit more skilled than most of the guys that Salmoto has been facing in ZST as far as just striking is concerned. So I'll give Salmoto some some slack there on, on getting kind of touched up in the early stages there because, I mean, it wasn't even the end of the first round when he'd already found his mark with a big shot and ended the fight. And that's not even his wheelhouse. He's not a striker. He's a, he's a, he's a crazy, explosive uh, scrambler from the Brave Gym. So we didn't even really see him really, really go deep into his bag of tricks. I'm sure we will soon. He's definitely going to be brought back for Ryzen. He's 100% a guy that I've been wanting for a while. 
he's a great addition to the flyweight slash bantamweight division um, as just a super talented young guy that wants fights a lot, I assume, and is ready to compete and, and progress himself. Um, so yeah, big future for him. He's going way up there, I think, pretty soon. Nakamura. Um, yeah, that, this is this is his position. He's the gatekeeper for the new guys. So he fought Shinryu in his debut, and he fought Salmoto in his debut. And I, maybe he'll hit, and going forward, he'll either be given a softer touch, a more competitive fight, somewhere around like the top noi Tiger Muay Thai level, to give to, to maybe give him a better chance of winning, or he'll fight another top prospect again. That's really his position. Um, and I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I, this fight, I was really, really surprised when I saw they were giving it away for free because this was one of the, my most anticipated fights on the show. I think I might have even called it out as one of my three favorite fights on the show on the last podcast just because I really, really mm-hmm. am excited about Salmoto. Um, and yeah, it delivered. I, I was impressed. I was definitely impressed with his performance. I have, I have a uh, post-fight comments from both Salmoto and Nakamura. Nakamura said that uh, my, uh, his, meaning uh, Nakamura, Nakamura said his condition was bad. I was nervous, and when I was getting calm, I got hit. So that was bad, too. My back step was not enough for that punch. I need to think about my career. And then Salamoto said, uh, Kazuyuki Miyata, uh, uh, head of the uh, Brave Gym, taught me that punch. Fighting in Ryzen is my destiny. Um... He said that he could uh, he couldn't lose as, as Zest champion. Uh, he is the current, uh, I believe, flyweight Zest champion. So, what do you think about what Nakamura says that he needs to think about his career? Is that just something you know? Whenever an MMA fighter loses, they always seem to say, "Oh, you know, maybe I'm gonna quit or something," and they wind up not quitting. You think that's just uh, kind of like well, just a, like a, a knee jerk reaction to that loss? Yeah, um, I guess. Uh the way that I saw his career as a totally legitimate gatekeeper isn't the way that he saw his. Maybe he thought that there was more of a future for him. But as a guy who's 34 years old, a flyweight as like a almost like just a pure karate striker, yeah. that's a very, very tough path through this division. This division's so tough and there are so many good grapplers in it that just, just to work your way through that, I think, is basically an impossible ask for a guy that's in his, his position. Um, if he thinks that his target is to do that and he now realizes that that is virtually impossible, then maybe, yeah, that's where he's coming from there. But, yeah, as you say, retirements in MMA, um, they never stick. They never, ever stick. Unless you're Chris Lytle. <laughs> and even though, I tell a lie, he fought bare knuckle. Yes, so that's true, they yeah. Stick. Yes. They never, ever stick. So, yeah, don't oh. believe the hype. Um, I would just uh, give credit. Those were from Shirobi at Shirobi on Twitter. So um, I want to know uh, what would you say would be you said we kind of talked about Nakamura. You know, give him somebody you know at a top noi level next. Um, uh, and what about Sal Moto? Uh, do you give him maybe uh, what which bantamweight? Slash flyweight, because uh, I'm I'm gonna guess there's gonna be probably a lot of interchange between the two divisions. Um, at the, I think that's why this fight was at 128 pounds, just because I don't know if Ryzen is so confident to have a flyweight division at this point, since it seems like bantamweight is, is the one they want to focus on. So maybe Salamota will be in flyweight, it could be entirely wrong, but it seems like. They might put him in, in Bantamweight for all, for all we know. But what do you think about uh, him versus Makoto Shinryu as a uh, future matchup? Oh my 
God, yeah, just give it to me. That's just perfect. I mean, I think that fight, after both their performances here, almost books itself. Um, and I think they're both young enough because normally you don't want to do that. You don't want to have prospects fighting each other because that means that whatever happens, one prospect's going to be set back and that doesn't do your division's health any good because you want turnover. You want a constant switch between new and old in the division. And if you have two prospects fight each other, only one of those is going to make a potential gain from that. Guaranteed, one of them isn't. Whereas if you have prospects fighting gatekeepers, you give both prospects an equal chance of both of them advancing up the division. So um, your, your traditional promoter mindset, you don't want to do that fight. You want to have them continue to fight more established names, older names, to both build themselves up to the point where they're both ready to be at a championship level. And then they can fight because they've beaten everybody else. Now they're both in their process of ascent. Do you want to force one of their momentums to be halted by matching them up against each other? It's a very tough proposition for, for promoters to, to have to weigh up because as a fight, it's absolute dynamite. It's awesome. I would just, oh, oh my God, just the, those two guys are just so dynamic and mm. exciting. And they both um, beat Nakamura. And they both finish yes. their fights. I, I understand what you're saying about the prospect thing, but one of the things I like to do is, and I hate it when any promotion does it, rise in UFC Bellator is when they when they put a winner versus a loser, because the winner has nothing to gain other than a, an extra win, but they can lose their entire momentum by losing to somebody who's way below their level. And uh, that's why I was thinking, you know, since uh, Shinryu won his fight later, that's that to me would be the ample fight to make, just because. You can then see, okay, this is the fighter who we can, uh, who can go forward after. And it doesn't mean that, that the prospects, you know, that, that since they're young and they're still young in their MMA career, I don't think that actually would, would disrupt their momentum uh, personally. I, I, see, I see what you're pointing about, the, about why promoters don't do it. But if I, it kind, I just see, it's it just kind of to see, you know, I, I like to see the winners versus the winners, especially when they get wins like, like the way they did. I think it makes for a very compelling and interesting matchup. Yeah, as, as a fight, on a, on a physical, technical level, yeah, I love it. I, and I do hope we see it. Um, I would like to see Ryzen book the trend there. You know, I think that would be interesting. Or, alternatively, they could go the safe route. They could say, you know, um, the guy that Urson lost to, Kenji Kato, that was a 1-3-4. That's at the same weight. That's a guy that won a fight against a named guy in an exciting fashion, but also I think would be a clear underdog to either of these guys. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's your logical step. Winner versus winner, but it's also like we know who the clear A-side in this fight is. Uh -huh. um, personally, I'm satisfied with either one of them because they both service my end in the sense that, in one sense, I'm, ex I'm happy that a prospect is being built properly. They've clearly identified as someone who's a real, real top talent and can go a long way. And I like that they're taking care of them and doing what lots of promoters fail to do, which is they kind of just keep them outside. The, and, and you've seen this happen all the time in the UFC, yeah. where really, really exciting talents just fail to break through the matchmaking um, glass ceiling for whatever reason. And they lose their edge and their momentum and a lot of their prime just fighting incredibly tough fights that aren't quite in the top ten. And But then you have some of them who the promoters care about more that get a very, very quick path to the top. It just gets mapped out for them. And they, they, they sidestep all those roadblocks. So mm. well, I hope for Ryzen's sake mm -hmm. that they sidestep, I think, both of those routes. And they 
either make a really uh, a sensible, logical matchup next for either of them against a more known commodity, or they have them fight each other, which would just be, yeah, it would be so exciting and so brave on Ryzen's part. It would show that, it would show, I think it would show that Ryzen has real confidence in both of them. Yeah. That they know that whichever one of them loses, they're still going to be okay, because they're still going to be in the promotion. And because they've been put together in a matchup of this caliber anyway, it shows that going forward, regardless of the result, they are worthy of that attention and interest. That uh, that Kato that match is interesting. Um, but you know, and you bring up you know about the UFC and how they you know how they'll book prospects. And you know, I think the best or I guess worst example I could think of was with Sage Northcutt, where they were trying to give him all these easy fights, and then he would lose against these easy these fights that were supposedly supposed to be easy. And it just totally destroyed any sort of interest that UFC later had. I think he got went on a two, two fight or three fight losing streak after that. And yeah, UFC just they cut the losses, and then he gets his jaw broken and won by Cosmo Alexander. And then so yeah, that's the one. That's the one thing about that Kato fight. That's a that's that is a dangerous fight for either of them. You're talking about a guy who can knock you out in one punch. On paper, you would think. Yeah, either Salmoto or Shinryu could beat him, but that is that it, it, he you know for a, he's a journeyman. That's the type of guy who will win three fights and then lose five more. But when he wins those three fights, he 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 does them by by destruction somehow. Yeah, he's a uh, he's a guy that you can't take for granted. Yeah, although his level very clearly established as being below theirs. Yes. He's also uh, um, almost a uh, it's a roll of the dice, you know, it's, it's somewhat unpredictable, it's a bit of a wild card. So I, I'd be fine with um, yeah, a fight like that or them fighting each other. Um, as far as them fighting each other going forward, I haven't really seen any movement or words from the promotion or the fighter's side as to that being their intention, but I have seen a lot of interest from the fans. Because mm-hmm. I've been talking about it, and other people have been talking about it, and you just brought it up right now through no prompting of mine whatsoever. So there is, I think, there's a momentum as far as that interest is concerned. I'd love to see it. It would just be a great fight. It would be a great fight to tell people about who don't watch Rising. You know, I think I think it's a, a really really marketable fight to international hardcores because you've just got two very very incredibly legitimate exciting prospects fighting each other. And you don't, you don't get that often, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, with that being said, uh, we're going to move on to the next fight, which was a pretty basic-as-bread match, unfortunately, in which Kaito Ono defeated Daryl Lokoku by unanimous decision in a kickboxing match. They fought at a catch weight of around 160 pounds. And um, so I'm going to pass this on to you, uh... Luke, what did you think about this fight, and why did it seem like Kaito Ono had such a hesitance to... Normally, he brings incredible aggression, intensity to his matches. Uh, why Why was there such... Why do you have cold feet in this match? Um, I wish I knew. I mean, I don't know what his training situation or his sparring situation is with the you know, social distancing lockdown that we've all been under in Japan. As far as I've seen, most fighters have basically training the way that they always were anyway. Maybe his was different, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but a very, very flat performance from him here. Yes, he won. Um, but that was, considering the matchup, 
Mm-hmm. That was the bare, bare minimum. Of course he was going to win. He was fighting a left-way MMA judoka guy. Yeah. Um, a guy that's nowhere near as experienced or skilled in that area that they were doing the rule set they were fighting under. So we really wanted to see Kaito show out here and put on an exciting performance and, and throw some, you know, some Kaito combinations and, and give us some nice gifts to post on Twitter. <laughs> we didn't get that. You know, we saw a guy, we saw Kaito who basically didn't really get out of first gear, didn't really take any risks. He just racked up points from the outside, throwing lots of kicks. Um, Lakoku was probably more successful with the punches in this fight. He landed a few, mm-hmm. just in very, very spare amounts throughout the three rounds. Nowhere near, nowhere near enough to win, really. But um, yeah, not a great showing for Kaito. I would just like to use this opportunity again to, to beg and plead shoot boxing. Please give us an event. We need one. We need shoot boxing. Let's get Kaito back in, in there under that rule set. Get him some more fights. Get him more active again. Get him more sharp. And um, yeah, I, I hope that that's what we get going forward. Um, Kaito will be back in Ryzen for sure, just because of his name and because he's been with these fought so many times with the promotion already. But yeah, this fight was nothing really to write home about. This, I think, was um, one of the worst. Yeah, I think this was. Uh, I would say, along with the uh, Kotetsu Boku fight, I think this was the weakest of the show by by a long stretch. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing I could at least say about Wokuku. He had a, his strategy in there was to go all power, and you know, credit to him. Usually, when people go all power, they tend to gas out. He didn't look like he was at all tired by by a third round. He seemed he could go another five rounds. Kaito, though, remember, and I don't know if it was you who pointed this out, but remember, it looked like he was trying to do the leg kick, trying to weaken Lakuku's legs. Then he just kind of stopped doing that strategy. Yeah, I believe that he hammered Lukoku's leg so hard in the first minute that Lukoku had already started switching stances in the first round. Yes. And yeah. then it looked like he was building up to something, you know, in, in the way that Kaito does. Yeah. Builds momentum, strings strikes together, gets guys hurt to the, to the legs and body and opens up the head so he can start putting punches on them. But yeah, he just never he just never put his foot on the gas past the first gear. He was just content to cruise, which is fine. He got the win. That's not really what this fight was for, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, curious enough, so Will Cuckoo said that he would be, uh, when he, we interviewed him, he said he'd be, he had a uh, two-fight contract with Ryzen, this one, and then one for MMA. Um, would you be at all interested in seeing Will Cuckoo in, in MMA and Ryzen? And if so, who would you like to see him uh, against? Okay, so is, does Ryzen have a welterweight other than Keita Nakamura? That's what I'm wondering here. Um, if not, then that's the fight, surely. I... If they, it's mostly lightweights who go up, probably. Because uh, remember, uh, Satoru Kitawoka fought uh, Kunimoto at uh, welterweight, and now Kunimoto is with Bellator now. Um, he is, yeah. Nakamura might be the only one. I don't think that Souza, I think Marcos Yoshio, uh, I think he's full on retired. And, That's uh, retired, yeah. And then Falco Neto, uh, I don't, would, I mean. Oh, Mano Cape's friend, yeah. Yeah, I mean. I that's a potential fight to make once once the borders open. But if we're talking now, yeah, the welterweight like welterweight division in Japan is is like a fucking unicorn. You like you have to look long and hard to find one, and if you even find one, it's probably not going to be what you expected. Yeah, there's really really no depth there. But since they're giving him a two fight deal, he'll he'll be back. Um, yeah, they might he might be back in September. They might be like, all right. We can get this done quick, and then boom, he's in and out before the New Year's show. So who, who knows? I, 
you know what? I'm, I'm a fan of Keita Nakamura. I like the guy's style. Um, very, very aggressive, durable, crafty uh, submission grappler. Definitely would be a huge favorite over Lukoku if they fought. But again, like, what are the options here? There really aren't that many. So if that's the fight we see next, yeah, why not? That's, that, that'll be fun. What? And for Kaito, I mean, we have to be honest, probably they won't do a shoot boxing match um, for whatever reason. What about him versus Matsukura? That, well, yeah, I, I, I'd take that. Yeah, they're at the same weight. Um, I do, I do, I, honestly, this, this opens up a question to me about the nature of the kind of kickboxing fights that kickboxers take in Rising. Because as we all know, and this includes tension, these kickboxers are not directly under contract with Rising. They are under contract with their home promotion yeah. of Rise, of um, Knockout, of Shootboxing, or whoever. They get loaned out to Rising on, that, on like a subcontractor basis. So that kind of relationship that's not exclusively between the fighter and Ryzen, it's the fighter and the promote, their home promoter with Ryzen. Yeah. And now that home promoter is going to have a say in the kind of fights that they, they take, which is why it's always been an interesting kind of thing to ponder for me as to why we see predominantly kickboxers not kickboxing other kickboxers in Ryzen. So when tension for Ibata, that was so significant for both tension in Ryzen and kickboxing in Ryzen generally as a real high-level kickboxer versus kickboxer matchup that you see so infrequently for that. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to see that fight. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, Arai's going to let Matsukura go into a super tough fight like that on a promotion, on a show they're not going to make money directly off? I don't know. A shootboxing going to let Kaito go into a fight like that? A, such a risky fight that they're also not going to make money directly off? I don't know. These are, these are the... These are the um, the kind of promotional hurdles that Ryzen have to get over since they work so closely with so many other shows um, to supply them with not only their kickboxers but their MMA fighters too. The, I think, yeah, we'll, see if they, we'll see if they can work it out, but there are obstacles there for sure, which is why I think hmm. we don't see it that often. I think that also a lot of these promotions, you know, let's be honest, uh, I, Rise, Shootboxing, uh, all the, and Zest, I think that what they hope is that since Ryzen obviously has the biggest platform uh, internationally and also domestically, I think a lot of them hope that they can maybe kind of leech off that, you know, if you have, you know, you send your champion there, your champion beats whoever, you know, maybe that'll raise stock for your promotion. Um, I think it's fair to say that that without the attention coming to Ryzen, I think a lot of, a lot of people would not be paying attention to Rise at this point. Um, I don't want to say... Well, at least people that were not that don't follow kickboxing, I would say. Because yeah. um, Rise, you know, before Tension, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, Rise was not on my radar at all. Um, and then that, that also gives them, you know, an opportunity to put their shows internationally like Rise did with the World Grand Prix last year. Um, now we're seeing Gratchen uh, having their sh uh, a show on Fight, uh, Fight TV next month as well. Um, since uh, they had Lukuku, who is a Gratchen fighter, and I think also a few other fighters from Ry uh, that have fought on Ryzen are from Gratchen. So I think a lot of them kind of will 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 give a little will give a little bit for Ryzen to take a mile, just because they can they just have that that huge platform, and then maybe they can get a little bit off of that. It was kind of like when UFC it was uh, had the thing with Pride. 
UFC was hoping that they would get some some of that from Pride, not the other way around. Yeah, you're right. So that's that's a very I think important model to use to look at how kickboxers are being booked in Rising and the intent that their home promoters have in loaning them out to Rising. And you're right, it's an exercise. Yeah. Ultimately, just in advertising, you get a bigger audience than you will ever ever get for your shows in person and online and on the broadcast. Yeah, you're going to want your guy there, and you're going to want them to look good. You're Same thing. Going to want something to serve your ends yeah. ultimately. Like, so I think I think you're right. Like Reina as well. Let's be you know Reina. Has has her stock has she wouldn't be fighting in Bellator if I don't think she ever fought in Ryzen. I don't think Bellator would ever think you know let's you know uh, if, if she had done a few shows in, in Deep Jewels you know bring her over and uh, have her fight at MSG. It's certainly, it's certainly a lot of these fighters get a lot of they get a lot from being on the on the Ryzen stage versus their home promotion. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think Bellator. Do they even have a women's division below flyweight? I can't even think of who their no. champion might be. I they don't, don't right? No. Exactly. Yeah. So you've got you've got someone like Rayner who's had a fight booked below strawweight, so be- a weight limit below where Bellator don't even service women's MMA because of yeah, exactly her following and her platform. That of course she had a her own long before Rising, but has been bolstered and grown so heavily by her involvement with Rising. So, yeah, I think, I think you're totally right, and, and it's important, I think, for us to look at these fights, not purely as just in a vacuum, when you have what is really a very unique um, coming together of all these different interests and bodies in Rising that you don't get in, in if you look at UFC or 1FC, there's no co-promotion there whatsoever. You have, you, have the, you have the single promoter and the fighters, and that's it. That's the extent of the relationship. Whereas with Rising... You have this whole other level of like a meta game. The Rising are playing with the other promoters, and they have different. Yes, they're working together, but they all they are also looking out for their own needs. So mm-hmm. Rising want to put on the best fights possible on their shows, whereas the best fights for Rising on those shows may not be the best fights for those single promotions kickboxers that are actually in them, because those kickboxers are going to have to come home at the end of the day, and are they going to be coming home with their stock raised or lowered? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think the risk reward is. I think a lot of them know the risk reward of it, and I think they 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 will put up. You know, Rise will put up a one of their champions uh, to take on. You know, to put to put somebody up against uh, in Ryzen uh, at at the risk at, that they may uh, that they may lose. Um, I think I think they would rather. I think they just it's they want. I think they see that the risk is a lot is worth the reward. Uh, this uh, with the, even though the conclusion might not be what they want, if you get what I'm saying. No, I agree. Yeah, exactly. So there's just there's a, there's, there's there's just an extra layer to what we're observing going on here, which is why Kaito Matsukura, sure, for us for Ryzen, that's perfect for them. You know, because also these, here's the other thing as well. Since uh, since Kaito does mainly shootboxing, who knows? Shootboxing and Rise may not be able to come to terms with anything. But Ryzen, uh, and this is how I've always seen, and this is how Sakaki Barra uh, has, you know, he's always when when people bring up, uh, you know, the comparison to Pride, he always he disagrees with that. He sees it as a federation where where they can have all these fights come together that normally you would not have under any other circumstances. And so it's kind of like a middleman, like a middleman where, you know, 
you know, Shufoxy may not want may not want to work with Rise or vice versa, but because Rise, but since Rise is the big boy here, they're gonna both want to work with the big boy. They want to come to the big boy table, so that's why they they'll sacrifice uh, their biggest fighters to, to come on that platform. Yeah, that is the. Um, I think that's the ideal of what we're looking at here. That is why you know Ryzen was created. Um, for me, almost the most enduring image, especially of those earlier shows where there was a lot yes. more collaboration with international promoters. Yeah. The most enduring image to me that I recall from those was the big wall behind the ramp yeah. with every single promoter's banner on there. So you had Pancraze, you had Jungle Fight, you had um, Shooter, Shooter One, KSW, K1. Yeah. So, you know, Cage Rage from the UK, you had so many different organizations coming together there and it was it was a very short-lived era because you know ultimately those promoters like i think we talked about on the first podcast are primarily self-interested mm-hmm. and it doesn't benefit their bottom line long term to be involved too heavily with another organization like that unfortunately but you know um I, that's that's why i do yeah i do enjoy the premise of rising so much and that it is so um, hopelessly idealistic yeah exactly um, now let's talk about the next match because this match was, I'm just going to say it was fucking awesome. Makoto uh, Takashi Shinryu, uh, now 11 and 1 with his first finish. So he broke the streak, Luke. He did, that's, that streak has now unfortunately ended. Uh, the decision Man, streak. Fold. Yes. Uh, the first thing I thought when he, when he got that finish, I was like, ah, oh, shit. Like, we may have jinxed it. We may have, you may have jinxed it with your whole, uh, you know, I hope he becomes a decision fighter for the rest of his career. That may, I think that, that just set a, mo- a, a, a motion down of, of, of the best way that this fight could have ended in a 2020 way. With him getting, of all things, a flying guillotine choke on Chiro Ito, 4 minutes, 30 seconds into round number 2. Who, Ito is now 12 and 4. What do you think of this match? What do you think about the the non-finish streak being ended? And yeah, tell us your thoughts, all the thoughts on this awesome fight. Yeah, this was, yeah, I think this was a clear standout of both shows. Um, I think the finish was just so, almost like, it's almost already iconic. I don't think I've ever seen a fighter ever in MMA do the classic Jose Aldo double knee, flying knee, that he's hit on, you know, Cub Swanson and and all these other guys, uh, I think he hit it on the, on the zombie as well. But being caught midair and then using that to wrap up your arm in guillotine. Because um, he tried the same yeah. thing in Nakamura match, I think, uh, when they had it at Bellator Japan, and it didn't work. So we, to, to, so when he went for the double knee, did he go for the double knee into a guillotine? Or was did Ito catch him, and that's when he decided to switch to the guillotine? Well, I believe, from what I read in his post-fight comments, he said that it was not intended as a guillotine setup. Mm-hmm. That he did throw it as a double flying knee, and then improvised that choke when Ito grabbed him with the body lock, and he was in position to cinch it in. Which is just, I think, I really, I think that's more impressive, because what that is is a testament to uh, Makoto Shinru's just kind of just next level of grappling IQ and his sense for position in every single area on the clinch and in the ground. Yeah. The guy just has, and he just, his brain just kind of works a bit differently to all these other guys in the decisions he makes and the kind of, um, the routes he goes down in terms of like the sweeps he hits, the takedowns he hits. I mean, oh my God. His... There was some 
crazy transitions that these guys have. And also, when round. he gets into a bad position, like when somebody's on, like when Ito has him in top mount or side control, how easily he gets out of those positions. It's really, a, it's next level grappling. I've never seen someone who can just easily, we see, you know, you see people struggle just in side mounts. Like they'd seem to be like, like a fish out of water, but he just seems to know how to get out of these, out of these positions so easily. Yeah, it, it, honestly, I, I know the, uh, the kind of reversal you're talking about. That reminds me a bit, and I'm, I am cautious in bringing this name up with a fighter that's so young and relatively unproven, but it reminds me a bit of how Fedor used to be when mm-hmm. he was caught underneath Noguera in their first fight and had to hit just an absolutely off-the-wall nuts reversal to get out of side control against him, but he had no right to hit on a Carlson Gracie black belt, and he did, just because some guys have that next level of, of, of dynamism, and their hips are built in a certain way, and they can time things so perfectly that catch your opponents off guard, that, yeah, it just looks like that guy's different, that guy's special. You have so many fighters in MMA which trained for decades and could never pull off something like that in that moment with the same natural fluidity and speed that they can. Um, Makoto Shinru is special. Kid's 20 years old. So experienced already, like I said, or like we said, bringing it up in the, from the first podcast again. This guy's got so many rounds under his belt that it doesn't matter what position he gets put in by a, a really skilled grappler in Ito. Let's not underrate him here because we remember when he fought Kizaman Saiga and rode him all over the ring. Mm-hmm. Ito's no stranger. He might be limited as a striker, like we saw against Mano K, but when it comes to the grappling, we've never seen anybody triumph over him like, like uh, Shinryu did here. Um, yeah, this guy is. You're looking at someone of someone of this age. You're looking at a future champion. He's gonna go all the way. The potential that he has, and how young he is, and the trajectory that he is now on, with the opposition that we've seen him beat in increasingly more impressive ways at an increasingly higher level of difficulty with who he's fighting. I think that just speaks volumes to like the kind of development uh, trajectory that he's on. Um, no. Yeah, I could not have more superlatives of. The one thing, the one thing was that is so he is the deep flyweight champion. Do you keep him? Does Ryzen develop a flyweight division around him and Salmoto and maybe some other flyweights in Japan, or does he? Do you think he should go up to bantamweight? Because I worry if he goes up to bantamweight, I, I like the full-on bantamweight. I don't know. Does he have as much success in that division against you know someone like a Yuki Matoya, uh, Ogikubo, uh, or those types? Uh, or those. Those types of fighters. What do you think? Now, I, I seem to recall towards the end of last year, Sakakibara was saying in the media a lot that Ryzen's program going forward was going to involve a lot more shows than normal, but on a more low level, regional level. Yeah. Now, Mike, do you recall those kind of yes. things coming was, out? Yes. Right? Uh, that was the, like the three hours plan, I believe. Something where they would have, yeah, these small regional. Shows, I guess, maybe at uh, Cork and I don't know about Cork and Hall, but Shinkiba or yeah, those types of uh, uh, Hamamatsu Arena or Aichi Professional Stadium, and then the big shows. Um, that's what you're referring to, I think, right? That's exactly what I'm yes. referring to, and I think okay. that represented for Ryzen kind of them taking a more active role in, in prospect development. What they've done very, very well so far is working with local promotions and in sourcing the best prospects that get developed by them to a certain stage, and then they come to the big show and keep going. We can talk about the main event guy, Kai Asakura, exactly that kind of dude, came from the outsider, 
Akira Maeda's promotion as a very, very raw young prospect, took a loss in Korea, came over to Ryzen, and he's just been built, and we've seen the kind of heights he's reached. And I think now what that plan was originally for Ryzen was them really, really stepping up and doing their own sourcing and building their own infrastructure in exactly the way that K1 currently do with Chaos and Crush and how they work these promotions to essentially just be prospect factories where young fighters fight off against each other until one of them rises above and then they go to the big show and then they keep doing it and doing it and that way they ensure that their talent pool is always being filled. I think mm. that's what Rising were looking to do before all this hit. Yeah, I think and so too. What I think, now to bring that to what your question was asking about the incorporation of the flyweight division, I think in that kind of structure, yes, it would have worked because their calendar would have got so much more full and it would have filled the flyweight division, the hypothetical one, and the current bantamweight division with more talent than it's currently getting. It's already getting a real good amount, but if we can take the bantamweight division as it exists now and split it in two as the bantamweight and flyweight, you're going to dilute it. So I think with Sakakibara's original plan of what he was going to turn Ryzen into into a more K1-style operation, I think that makes absolute sense, and I think they probably would have done it already. As mm. it stands now, with their far-reduced calendar this year, and maybe next year too, just because the financial fallout of this whole event is going to you know, reverberate, I think, for a long time, Yeah. I don't know if we see it before then. Because to create another world title and start booking it on the same calendar of shows reduces your options for booking the other division that's right next door to it by 50%. Have to chop it in half if you want to give that title as much legitimacy and as much focus when it comes to matching people up to fight for it. And right now, I think the bantamweight division is by far and away the best thing about Ryzen. It's the one thing that I can say. This division right here stacks up alongside any other bantamweight division that you can look at right now in the world of MMA. It is that good. It is that well-matched. The prospects that they're getting are that exciting and interesting. Um, really, really, I can put that alongside any of them and I say it matches up. They chop that in half and they make a flyweight division because they chop that. That's a lot of bantamweights, quote unquote, in that division that make flyweight real easy. Um, Kubo is one of them. He makes flyweight real easy. So you're taking a lot of talent away there. And I think without the, the structural work that Rising were going to do in bolstering their big shows with all these different smaller shows, I don't think we're going to see that happen until that. So definitely not this year, obviously. Maybe next year. Who knows? Let's see how things play out. Hopefully, we're thinking next year and into the year after, if we real, if we see a real kind of transformation of what Ryzen as a promotion looks like structurally from the bottom up to look more like a K1-style promotion, um, I think you can definitely work a flyweight division in there. I mean, I think K1, K1 has way too many divisions. K1 have a lot of divisions that are kind of a joke. Um, like 70 kg in K1, now you've got Minoru Kimura just like lamping everybody in sight there. I don't know. Like it's, it's yeah, he's got a belt, but what, how much does that mean in the way that that belt was given to him? I feel like the there's for the divisions K1. They seem to be like I guess uh, the equivalent of uh, I don't know what it would be in kgs, but like seems like every five pounds there's a division. It's kind of like in box, like American boxing, where it's just it seems like every every five uh, weight different, every five pound weight difference, there's another division. It, it, like when I see that that Floyd Mayweather was an was an eight division uh, champion or whatever, like super featherweight, featherweight, uh, light heavy or whatever. Yeah, they seem it seems to be like they just almost create divisions just because just to give a fighter or give a give someone on the roster, you know, a whole bunch of extra wins. 
Yeah, so I, I think for K1, I mean, everyone has gone the other way. They have too many divisions. Whereas yeah. Ryzen, I think we're seeing, especially with the flyweight, bantamweight, grey area, with guys like Salmoto and, and Shinryu, who are flyweights, and guys like Kai Asakura, who is not. Um, you're seeing, yeah, two different sides of the same coin there. And I would like to see, hopefully next year, when they're on a bit more financial um, stable ground, Ryzen start to move, move towards that plan that we were seeing them talk about towards the end of last year mm-hmm. and having a more tiered league approach to their promotion. Because I think in that kind of organization, there is room for a flyweight division. Mm-hmm. I think as it stands right now, there isn't. And I don't think we'll see one. I think we'll see these guys, flyweights, continuing to fight a bantamweight. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to uh, read their post-fight comments, uh, Shinryu said that guillotine it was by accident, uh, as you said. Uh, after the flying knee, somehow I got into a good position to do it. However, I am still weak, but I will lead Ryzen after two to three years. So he's already uh, uh, thinking, I'm going to be I'm gonna be the big guy in Ryzen two or three years from now. And then uh, Ito said he hurt his elbow uh, during the fight and was nervous and my reflexes were too slow. And he did the wrong move against that guillotine, um, which I'm guessing he means by by defending it properly. Um, what about the case of Ito? Um, do you bring him? You think they'll definitely bring him back for a show? I have to assume, right? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Ito's definitely getting another fight in Rising. Um, he came from was he was he was he was ZST as well, right? Yes. Okay, so it's like the ZST. It was Ryzen and. Special guest star ZST just because of how many ZST guys they had. Yeah, that's great. They have, yeah, they're, they're, they're a really, really good prospect factory. So yeah. I think if, uh, if ZST start running shows again, he might take a fight there um, to just get himself back on the winning track because now we're looking at over three years without a win for Ito because really, honestly, talking about Ito's losses aren't, isn't really the central issue with him. Talking about his injury problems and his inactivity, mm-hmm. that is the issue for him. So he's talking about he's hurt his elbow. For a long time, he had nose. He had problems with his nose. Mm-hmm. It's just his body keeps keeps failing him. Unfortunately, and there's really not a lot you can do about that. Unfortunately, in in a sport like MMA, where you have to train so so hard for these fights, you have to prep yourself so thoroughly and put yourself through absolute hell in these training camps. So, very uh, aside from um, being very careful, training very smart, that's really the only precaution you can take as a pro if you're injury prone. Unfortunately, so for him. It's not the end of the world, like we said. Um, he lost to Manel Cape, who's now been the rising champion. He's going to be top-ranked in the UFC soon. Lost to Salmoto and Shinryu. Those are the two best prospects of fly bantamweight in the country. Mm-hmm. So he's fighting very, very tough competition. I'd like to see him take a step down after this. Maybe he fights Yusuke Nakamura. Uh, Who knows? I was just about to say, him versus uh, Yusuke Nakamura would be, I think that'd be a perfect match. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Um, what about? I'm gonna. I don't know what your thoughts are gonna be. Is what about Ito versus Erson Yamamoto? Uh, that's so horrible on Erson though. Erson's losing to guys with not great records. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, Ito's not a knockout puncher, so he's not gonna beat Erson in the way that Kenji Kato did. But that's still yeah. Urson, I think, himself said after that fight, I've got to go back to the regionals. Yes. I'm not ready for this level of competition. So I want to, yeah, hopefully he does that. I think an Ito-Urson fight, ugh, not a good look for, uh, for uh, yeah, the uh, the inferior Yamamoto, as it currently stands. Far inferior to me. And we'll definitely be talking about the inferior Crazy Bee 
uh, shortly after this. So, after this fight, did you see this? They had an intermission with, like, I have no idea what the name of this group was. A rap group? Like, there's maybe 12, I counted at least 10 people in the ring. So this is, like, the biggest rap group I've ever seen in, like, in the history of, of music. Did you watch this at all, or did you just, was, as soon as this came on, you're just like, oh, fuck this, I'm going somewhere else? I definitely took the opportunity to have a, a tactical shower, because it was, like, like 7 a.m., I think, at that point. So I, I was like, okay, I'm dipping. It's a musical interlude with Bad Hop, uh, also known as uh, ASAP Rising. So I'm, yeah, I wasn't going to stick around for that. But, hey, shouts to Bad Hop. Have a big following on social media apparently, and they tweeted out the crowdfunding link, and they showed love. So, oh, Can't you know, as I said, uh, as I said, you know, the, uh, crowdfunded uh, money well spent, I guess you could say. Um, uh, what I want to also ask: What did you think about the way that they that that the show was structured, where they had the pre-show with the fighter, they were interviewing the fighters, and then in, during the intermission, uh, they were interviewing the the fighters who would be fighting later. Uh, what do you think about the way that they just did this show versus Fight TV era, where we just got a a looping Ryzen theme to knockouts, mostly of Floyd Mayweather knocking out tension? Yeah, oh my God. That kind of, it's such a, it's such a weird, especially when you're sleep deprived, watching the intermission, which is already agony. Having that theme played over and over when, when you see tension just like get battered around the ring by Mayweather. With that theme playing over and over, it's almost like the scene in um, A Clockwork Orange <laughs> where, the, where the main character just has his eyes pulled yes. open and they have to keep watching that film on loop. It does kind of put you in a weird mental um, fugue state. Yes, I enjoyed the broadcast for those elements. It, it felt like, you know, when the Fuji TV portion of the bigger show starts, you can see there's a difference. You can see it's more produced in that way. There's shots of people backstage warming up, which you don't normally get for the undercard fights. There's more media um, interview kind of personality stuff around. You can just see it just takes on a different kind of profile. It's just a bit more kind of a TV entertainment e. And uh, yeah, they have that format basically for the whole show this time. I think it's great. I think it's totally fine. They're doing that, getting fighters to have a bit more um, camera time on the main broadcast. So to, to understand like what their attitudes are, what their personalities are like, you don't have to go and search their social media or watch Rising Confessions. It's all out there. That's great. And I think it also works for when the pacing between fights to fights is so so fast, it's so flawlessly fast. I mean, these shows were gone in a blink of an eye, you know, mm -hmm. when, when I was watching them live. So I've got no problem with a bit of... Um, I don't like filler, but I, I'm, I'm not opposed to constructive... Um, informative filler. Yeah, I know. I agree. You know, listen, this, I give, and it, it, even if it's not, there's no English. Uh, the, the, they did the bare minimum for English, which was just had the fighters when they were coming out, just had their names uh, in English. Uh, I have no problem with, and with a Japanese interviews in place of an hour long intermission of just highlight loops over and over and over. I have, Give me this any day. That's the other, yeah. That was the other thing I worked, think worked about two, these two shows. They're about about roughly four hours. Uh, I think the first show was a little bit longer, though, um, if I remember correctly. But even with that, these shows just flew by. 
they it did not seem it did they did not have a four hour feel, and even with the intermission, it it did there was no filler. If and the number one thing I always heard about the fight TV or just Lizen's previous shows was the intermissions just were a killer. They were deal they were a deal killer just because they're so long and there's just not they're offering nothing. If they have an intermission like this that they can off that. You know, even if the Fuji TV, you know, these shows are not showing live on Fuji TV. But if, you know, going forward, if the shows that are on Fuji TV live, if they have something like this, where they show, you know, doing interviews of the fighters, or even showing maybe uh, finishes from the er from the earlier portion, or doing just going to the commentators. By the way, we had special guest commentator Sushi Kosaka, Master of the Battlefly Guard, on commentary. You know what? I'll take it. I will take it over just... Uh, Ryzen theme, Mayweather, knocking out tension for an hour and 15 minutes. Also, as an aside, uh, in this house, we don't call it the Butterfly Guard, we call it the TK Guard. Oh, good point, good point. Rest in peace to Jeff Flatnick, by the way, coining that classic term. If you're into your, if you're into your 90s uh, VHS-era UFCs, you know we're, we're all about the alliance here. We're all about the TK guard. Oh, in my, in my jiu-jitsu school, we never call the TK guard. I'm just so used to calling it the butterfly guard, but that is a good point. And anytime yeah. it's regarding Kosaka, we got to always call it the TK guard. Um, TK now, when the show came back, uh, we had uh, Mikuru Azakura on commentary uh, for this fight. And I'm going to say right now that this fight, this featherweight fight, was the alien colonial marines of fights in probably the I can't remember the last time I've despised a fight so much on a Ryzen show. Probably the last one was Ryzen eleven with uh Volpurev, the fat Mongolian and Shibisai. But in this fight we had Jan, Jin Aoi uh defeating Kotetsu no face Boku by decision. Uh Aoi climbs a eight and three Boku 26 and 15. Um, I liked when they were sh cutting back to uh, Mikuru uh, in this fight, or I think they also maybe had him uh, like uh, on the um, like uh, like as like a a picture in picture. He looked bored as fuck. He just looked like is this are these is this the competition I'm gonna have to deal with? He did. He looked like he wanted to be somewhere else. This fight sucked. Both fighters looked terrible. I don't know. That's that's really all I have to say. What do you have to say about this fight, Luke? No, yeah, I, I agree. Um, Kotetsu Boku is shot to death. Can't pull the trigger, can't push a pace, can't really throw punches anymore. And Aoi, the guy who beat him, doesn't really have that excuse because he's a young guy. So. Did you notice that when, when, he, w when he would have uh, Boku like, like backing up into the corner, he would just walk backwards back to the center of the ring? Like he was afraid that that Boku, Boku's knockout power might hit him. Yeah, I think with the way that Boku got blown out pretty much immediately by the three last guys who fought him one FC, they kind of set the standard for what any kind of prospect does, who's worth their salt, would do to him. Oh, he didn't really do that. He he dragged him to a depressingly competitive, slow-paced three-round sleeper. Um, yeah, he. But Boku's definitely not coming back. In my opinion, shouldn't be fighting anymore because to be that shot. And it's not like he was broken. 
he just can't throw anymore. He can't pull the trigger. He can't create offense anymore in his fights, which means he's not going to win any more fights. And that's really, really bad and dangerous, and he shouldn't be competing anymore, in my opinion. And Aoi, yeah, I mean, it's just not... The way he won just was, was very, very uninspired and, and not impressive. I don't think we see either of these two guys again, even though Aoi won against you know a guy who had has a name, had a name. I'm not even sure where Boku's at at this point as far as where his esteem is or, or his standing. But, yeah, the less said about it, the better. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Boku, after the fight, uh, said that... Uh, in my mind, I'm Superman, but in reality, I'm getting old. I need to retire or go go somewhere else to fight, uh, like Ursan. Not saying he's going to fight Ursan, but he needs to go somewhere else uh, to fight. Um, and then Aoi said, I'm relieved about getting the win, but dissatisfied about not getting the finish. Um, and he said uh, he expected Boku. Uh, he, he had no... Uh, when he trained exactly for how he thought Boku was going to fight. Um, now also it should be mentioned, this was Crazy B going 0-3, uh, with, uh, Yachi losing the day before, and, as we said, Ursan losing his fight. And then with Boku losing, 0-3 for Crazy B. What are your thoughts on the Crazy B camp, and what, what, what is going on over there that, that, at this, that we are now saying that 46-year-old Miyu Yamamoto is probably right now the best fighter that they have on their, divi- in their, in their entire camp? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think Crazy B overall as a gym, their legacy and reputation is staked almost entirely in, like, the athletic achievements of Kid Yamamoto. Yeah. And his achievements were not only really his alone, not the gym's. He would have been that, I think, that crazy and talented wherever he went just because he was a 0.1% genetic fucking freak and could accomplish things and do things in the ring that very, very few people who've ever walked the face of the planet could. I think not only is that exclusive to him, but that's also just kind of by its very nature a very short-lived route to success for him as a fighter and for them as a camp. So when they have certain fighters that either fade like Boku or just aren't de- haven't developed to a level where they can be competitive or, or even fringe regional title level like we've seen with Yachi, this is just the level that they're at right now. And yeah, they've got Miyu who is very good now as an atomweight and is top five in the world at atomweight and it's very legitimate. And you've got I, who's a who's a prospect who's coming along, but it's still, you know, a long way from that level. Um, yeah, it's just a gym without without the talent coming in and without the coaching to either get good talent or make good talent into good fighters. Now what now hypothetical. Let's just say Ryzen does book Mikuru and Boku. What, what if they booked that? What do you? How would you feel about it? they just they they go against any sort of any sort of logical thinking and book that match? Yeah, I mean that, that would be so stupid, especially when they literally had a much better featherweight fight on this card yes. that they had Mikuru on commentary for that produced a clear contender for him. I mean, I don't know what kind of weird weird messed up universe would be living in if that fight got made. Not only was it absurd. At the outset, it's even more so now that, Mikuru, uh, that Boku sorry, is lost clearly to a very subpar opponent. Um, yeah, that would just that would break my brain. I think. Um, now you also said that you don't think they'll bring Aoi back. Um, do you feel I? Why uh, do you think that it just because he looked he looked so lackadaisical in this fight that that's the reason why, that 
Do you, do you think that's the reason why they won't give him another chance, or is that why you wouldn't give him another chance? A bit of both, really, because I think even in the way he won this fight, he's so far below the level of the other featherweights that we saw tonight, and I think that we'll generally get booked around Mikuru going forward, that even if he does get brought back, he's not entertaining enough, and he's not at a technical or athletic level enough that he's ever going to be anything other than just food for actual good fighters. So... And he was—he was, he was just—he was real. This was a really boring fight. It wasn't—it wasn't good to watch. He didn't show us why he should be brought back. And Takakibara is someone that talks a lot about win or lose. If you come and you—you're entertaining and you—you you leave it all out there, you can get fights to come. You can get fights regardless if you win or lose. You know, if you—if you impress in that way, that's really what he's looking for, rather than just you know very very clean clinical tactical winning all the time. That's the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just. I don't see a route forward for him in the promotion other than being given to a good guy, someone like um, Saito or or, um, or anyone of that level, you know, that yeah. would just destroy I, him easily. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, what would you do say about if they do have a featherweight tournament to decide for a Grand Prix, whatever? Do you put Aoi in it or you find somebody else? If it's eight-man, maybe. If it's four-man, absolutely not. Uh, I think if you're eight, if you're doing an eight-man tournament in a world that's locked down, in a division where in Ryzen it's, it's almost non-existent, so they have to be drafting in most of the competitors. Sure, put him in there. He's got he's got enough of a name root from being on a Ryzen show and getting a win over a formerly name opponent that I guess it makes sense. But I think I would absolutely hope that if he was in that tournament, he would be fighting guys that would eliminate him in the first round. If he's making it through to semis or even finals that well, I think that would say a lot about the weakness of that tournament which I hope is not what we get I, also, I think I think you just mentioned as well you know with the current state that Ryzen has to the, the, the talent pool that they are basically forced to choose from at this point he might just he might just be brought back because there you can't you can't really go outside Japan at this point in and that division as well because again featherweight that's still that's it's it's it's, it's I don't want to say it's not as plentiful as as bantamweight. Uh, you still have a good bunch of people in, in that featherweight division, but it's still not. At, it doesn't have the uh, the reach, I think, uh, domestically as a bantamweight division. You could, uh, I I would say. So he might just. I feel like if they do bring him back, it'll be begrudgingly because they can't really. They can, there's maybe just not a lot of people to choose from. Yeah, exactly. It will be because their hands forced, not because and there's any preference towards Bo- it. So I don't yeah. think there is. And then Boku, yeah, don't, no, cut their losses. I know. He's saying that, you know, if I fight somewhere else, no, no. He should stick to his word. He said if he loses his fight, whatever fight he loses, he'll retire. Stick with it. I don't want to see him die in a in a Mikuru fight. I can't believe that. that if, imagine if that fight was booked instead with Aoi. I, Boku might have been legitimately killed. <laughs> we might have had our first rise in death during a live show. Yeah, that would have been awful. <laughs> I don't think it would have even reflected well on Mikuru, to be honest with you. Oh, no. It was just, it would just look terrible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I, I totally, and yeah, Mikuru, as I mentioned before, looked totally bored in this fight. And I, I, I had the same exact sentiment as him. And if we're going to talk about a killing, we got to talk about the death of Taiga. Not literally, of course, figuratively. Uh, in the next match, kickboxing, 134 pounds, where Kento Haraguchi, the Rise Bantamweight champion, knocked out Taiga of the Tryhard Gym. 
two minutes, 50 seconds, round one. And, you know, it's, it's kind of become kind of a meme that Tiger loses. But at this point, I'm, it's not, I think with this fight, unlike the other ones where it's kind of like, haha, Tiger losing. I think this one was maybe the, I think it just culminated in this being the saddest of his most recent losses. What do you think about that, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of remember that the tone of our preview for this fight was one of sadness already, just because especially, I mean, as far as I was concerned, it was already a foregone conclusion. Tiger wasn't going to win this fight. Yeah. Um, I think it was made worse by the manner in which he lost it, because he might as well have lost the first fight, but at least he didn't get destroyed in it. It was just a very, very cagey, uninteresting three-round draw decision. Whereas in this one, he just got immediately destroyed in the first round. Kento really had just no, felt absolutely no threat from Tiger's offense whatsoever, was able to just walk him down, land kicks, and eventually just like, you know, shift into a big overhand right, drop him, at which point the fight was just just about, just as good as over anyway. Um, yeah, it's, again, there's, there's really not, similar to the Boku fight, there's not an awful lot to pick over here since we basically called this as it was going in. So there's very few surprises. Um, Kanto looked great. He's a great, great fighter. He's going to go on to have a great career, I'm sure. He's got really, really special physical tools, and he has such a deep technical arsenal to choose from when he goes at guys like this. That he's a kicker, but guess what? He decided to just punch Tiger instead. You know, he has that that has that depth to his game. That a guy like Tiger, who shouldn't even be up at 61 kg anyway, nowhere near that size for the weight. It's just absurd. A guy that his frame is is up there. Um, yeah, he was. He had no way to win this fight, really. I think we all knew that, and he lost it in probably the worst way possible. I think also, uh, it's what what I it, yeah. When you Kento looked like this was like not even it. It's I, I, there's I I is Kento was Kento that good or was Tiger that awful for the reason for this outcome. I think it's very similar to the when Tension would fight MMA guys, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of both. It's a guy who has you know tremendous athleticism and a huge technical advantage, deciding to not even consider their opponent as a viable threat whatsoever, and just blasting them with power punches at will until the fight's over. Um, Kento's very good, and he's going to be fighting, it looks maybe, like Rise have announced a tournament. Mm-hmm. Um on an upcoming card where Tension's also going to be fighting against uh, Yuki, which I don't know. We can talk about that fight, maybe. That's a terrible fight, but um, whatever. <laughs> we think that Ryzen, Ryzen gives uh, jobbers to uh, to Tension only? No. It, 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 it's, it's almost, it's almost all, both Ryzen and Ryzen. Maybe sometimes even Ryzen more. Yeah, I mean, especially with this fight, which is just Ryzen. Although they're just servicing themselves with this. I, I don't know. We don't have to get into it too deeply because yeah. it's not directly relevant here. But, yeah. um, Kento and Taiju Shiratori, who is the rise, I think he won the uh, this World Series last year at yeah. 63 kg. Both very, very top-level kickboxers. They've been put, put into a tournament together as, I think, a concession for the fact that Rise's big tournament at that weight limit wasn't going to come off, I think, this year. I think they've realized with all its travel restrictions the amount of talent they were looking to get from Australia and Thailand to put that thing on looked like it's, it's very difficult. So they're just going to do a safe bet and do a four-man one-night tournament with those two guys in. We'll probably come through their opening fights and then fight in the final, which will be very, very good. Both those guys are very high level. Um, 
I'm very excited to see that fight play out because it's it's um, very evenly rematched, and both guys are super excited to watch as well. Um, the Tiger going forward, I mean, I don't know. What's there to even say? He's going to keep fighting and probably keep fighting for Ryzen because his name is so big and he has so many, and he has such a huge following and so many fans. But is he going to grow from this? I don't know. He, he should have, he should have grown when Talison Gomez Tejera did the same thing to him like two years ago, and it didn't happen. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to harp on it too long because I'm just, uh, this is very disappointing. Mike Skite, uh, uh, I think, said it best. He's Tiger is 24 years old and is already past his prime. What do you yeah. think? Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I think that's true. In a lot of other ways, I think it's more preventable than that. I think we could still be seeing good things from him. Even if he wasn't technically developing in, in, in the way that someone of his talent should, but if he was just fighting at a reasonable weight limit, it's not way far outside of where he should be. Mm-hmm. You know, I, if he was down at 58, 59 kg instead of up at 61, there's a completely different physical gulf that exists there between him against guys like Taiju and Kento, mm-hmm. and then down there against where he's been fighting guys like uh, Rui Vata or Saikyu Ayama, you know? Um, I think... Where, we, where I think he would... Maybe he would have a lot more time to... Um, develop technically because he'd be in longer fights mm-hmm. and he wouldn't just be looking for big shots while losing all the rounds against these big long technical guys i think also with tyga if you look at his body composition he's a short guy but he's stocky so oh yeah i wonder is he even possible is he just is just the way his body is composed this like now especially because i'm okay he's 24 not 34 but just i don't know can he he would have to shed, I, I'm guessing he probably has maybe 0.1% body fat, just, I'm um, just, I'm doing an eye test. So I'm not, he would have to shed off some of his muscles, I'm guessing if he wants to get down to that weight, uh, the uh, 50 kg weight, because I don't see any other way that he can get down to that weight just the way that he's built. He, he you know, that's the, that's the problem with, like, a lot of those short, stocky guys. Like, uh, you know, I know that the thing I always heard was, like, if Roy Nelson wanted, really wanted to, he could get down to uh, middleweight if he wanted to lose the weight, but he just his body type, he, he, he can't. Uh, same thing with Cormier being a five foot ten heavyweight. Uh, it's, it's just his body type. I don't know if, if it's... If he, at this point, he wants to shed all that muscle... For that all that power that he does have, and he does have it at the current weight class uh, at, at, that he's at. I don't know. I think that just might. I don't know if he'd be wanting to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a sacrifice either way. I do think that between camps, he definitely puts on a lot of weight. It's not muscle. I've seen him show up in shape. Yeah, Johnny Hendricks. The Johnny Hendricks. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen. I've seen him show up at press conferences before he's gone into camp and he looks in pretty terrible condition. So I think that's step number one for any fighter, not just him, but any fighter to you stay in shape year round and then you use your training camp to get better and train for your specific opponent. You don't use your training camp to lose weight because doing that means you don't get better. And it's a very basic principle that certain great fighters that had that saw extreme longevity in their careers and developed technically in enormous ways like Floyd Mayweather or Bernard Hopkins, those guys adhered to that religiously. They stayed in shape year-round, and when they trained for fights, they trained to get better. They didn't train to get in shape. That is A, number one. 
to any fighter and for Tiger especially, I, would, I, I think if I, if I didn't know that that's what the situation was with him, I wouldn't be as critical, I think, because I know there's more he can do as far as that's concerned. So I've seen the kind of shape he's got into outside of fights. And it's, yeah, it's, it's unprofessional. It's not, it's not what people have, who want to be reaching any kind of elite level in their sport should be doing. Um, I don't think any of them do. Um, so it's that, and then as you say, there needs to be some uh, physiological change as far as his, his, how much muscle he's carrying as well to, to get out of this weight class because there's no future for him here. Absolutely none at all. Because what we have to, I know, I know, I'm sorry I'm talking this so much, but I just, it's just a downfall of a fighter like this is so rare. You see, I can name the number of times, you know, I could think of maybe BJ Penn, um, Johnny Hendricks. Tiger's case, former K1 world champion, and now he's, lo he's losing to Thalisin Gomez Fejeja in, in, a, in a kickboxing match. And I'm just, I, I don't know, I don't know, I, 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 guess, I guess a win-loss record isn't so much as important in kickboxing. Okay, oh, here's the other thing as well, and this is in addition... Uh, that we we could talk about Sakaki Bara when asked about Taiga, he said that Taiga should go down and wait in kickboxing, which we already talked about, or go into MMA. And when I saw, did you see that when it was translated? I think LJ I didn't. I didn't, but yeah, why not? I mean, at this point, he's got so few options. Well, the thing is that what like, to, what has he got to lose? You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, I had to believe that that like he was saying that jokingly. I don't know what if who would if he were to go into let's just say rise in MMA uh, yeah who would you put up against him I don't know Urson? Uh, I mean no I think he's way out of that is he way out of that weight limit I'm not sure no no worse Ursan fought at around 130 pounds for this uh for this past fight so that's right is that around 60 yeah so, 60 yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah roughly that weight yeah. Yeah, I mean, as far as looking at specific matchups, that's not the way I would approach it personally. I would look at um, where, what are Tiger's options going forward as just a competitor generally. Um, his kickboxing career, where is that going? As far as where he stands right now in the divisions he's fighting in and his technical, um, the, 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 the technical uh, kind of freeze that's been on his game now for years, it's not going anywhere. Because he is popular enough to a point where he has to fight a certain level of competition, but that level of competition just beats him. So, my, my perspective is, what has he got to lose? His kickboxing career is as good as over. It's flamed out, really. So, um, going into MMA, you know, I mean, it's not like he's wasting any potential because his potential has already been really fully realized as far as where he developed technically in kickboxing. Mm -hmm. um, as far as specific opponents, I mean, no idea. I have, I have no idea what that would look like or where he would go with that. I don't even know if he would fight MMA and rise in initially. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a very sad story. But as far as looking for comparisons, you'd say Johnny Hendricks and that. I think the most obvious comparison is Big Bro, Hiroya. Mm -hmm. Who, by the way, was not in his corner. Did you notice that? I didn't see Hiroya in his corner. I didn't notice that, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder why. Uh, but uh, that's actually a great example with Hiroya. Yeah, you know, um, bigger brother uh, uh, again, champion uh, in his in his division, and now and just I don't know. Maybe there's a Kawabe gene where you, where you just peak in like at age twenty or twenty one, and then you just lose your all of your athleticism after the, after your twenty first birthday or something. Yeah, it's very very tragic. Um. Well, now with Haraguchi. 
Um, I suspect that Ryzen probably will bring, bring him back, and I'm, you know, I think we could re- both we both want to see him back. Uh, what would you do for an opponent for him after this Rise tournament, by the way, as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it depends really how the tournament goes for him. I mean, if he he'd definitely be the underdog against Taiju Shiratori if they fought. Mm-hmm. If he won, I think that would be that's a very good fight. But he'd definitely be the underdog, and that would be an upset if he fought. Yeah. Um, I think they'd probably do a rematch because of Taiju's kind of bigger name and brand, and, and he's, he fights at a, a higher weight limit naturally. I would love to see that rematch on a, on a rising card, maybe. Um, but for Kento, you know, he's at such a high level as a kickboxer now. Again, it's similar to the conversation we had earlier about Kaito. It's unclear as to what real high-level opposition he's going to ever face in Ryzen. Because um, high-level opposition for Kento is very, very high level. It's, it's a very small group of guys. It might just be him fighting um, MMA guys, leftway guys. Who knows? You know, anybody. Maybe it's time the, that uh, Ryzen develop a leftway division. Imagine that. Would you? To fight in kickboxing, that would be fun. Yeah. Um. What about so he he beats Taiju in the uh, in this tournament in Rise. Would you then be? And we always used to ask this whenever there'd be uh, a kickboxing match within this uh, sixty kilograms, fifty kilogram division. Would you then? Would a Kento tension match be at all interesting for you? Yeah, that would be great. Um, I don't know if Rise would do that. Oh, I meant Horizon. I meant Horizon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I mean, obviously, what I mean is, yeah, would Rise sign off on that in Rise? It would have to be with that say so. So I don't know. Oh, That'd gotcha. be a great fight for sure. I mean, uh, well, yeah. The thing is, I don't know if the weight would be an issue there because he would be getting quite far above where tension's at. I mean, this fight was already at sixty-one kg, and the highest tension I think has gone is fifty-eight. I think the Yuki fight on that Rise show is fifty-eight. So there is a gap there to be made with the weight. Um. But those guys are all super talented, and any kind of combination of them, I think, is great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, presuming at this tension, uh, uh, Koji, or the two things I suspect, I, either tension Takaru for New Year's Eve, or if that falls through tension Koji, um, if, if the Koji fight were to fall through for whatever reason, if they decided to do Kento and uh, tension, you think that'd be a good match to make for New Year's Eve? Um, yeah, 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 I, I would like that. My, yeah, my, my main concern is, as I said, the weight, yeah. I think. I don't know how, how they would meet in the middle there. But yeah. I do think what is interesting is Tension's fight with Yuki, that's for a November show in Rise, which is a long way off, and that's his next fight for Rise. So I think it's a very good chance that we see Tension on the end of September Rising card because that Yuki fight is so non-competitive. Yeah. It's not going to require him to dedicate you know, six weeks exclusively to training for that. It's a very, very light fight for him. Uh, it's a it's a pad session for him really. So I could, I, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. So I can see where that fight being where it's at competitively, and being where it's at on the calendar, I can definitely see tension fighting and rising between now and then. Fight Pros had uh, had an interesting theory that he thinks that tension was supposed to be on the twenty two card against Koji, but then when he had the match with the kick uh, shoot boxer and rise the month before, he broke his hand. So he thinks that 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 probably tension Koji was supposed to be the main because if you look at that card that is a that was a that was a weak ass card it really was so it sounded like he thinks that they were gonna probably he was there would probably be a main event kickboxing match between tension and Koji. Yeah, that would be massive. I don't know if Ryzen. I think because Koji's I think a huge part of his appeal to promoters into Ryzen specifically is how well he can draw tickets in Osaka. Mm-hmm. When he fought Takaru in Osaka. 
they did maybe I think K1's biggest gate that they've done. Oh yeah. Period. Period. Point blank for any show that K1 Japan since 2014 has done. He's a massive, massive draw there with that fan base. He's huge. He's the. He was the. He's fighting Takaru, the K1 superhero, and in that room that night, the biggest room K1's ever filled out in this iteration of the promotion. They were all for Koji. He was the massive fan favorite. So he commands a massive audience. So maybe that fight was going to be done on the 22 show. I think if I'm rising, I want to wait and hope that restrictions get lifted to the point where I can do as big gate, bigger gate as possible in Osaka. If I'm doing tension Koji, I honestly wouldn't even do that in Saitama because I think that's wasting mm-hmm. what Koji's appeal is to the promotion and why he was such a big signing for them. Interesting. He's a big signing because in Osaka he moves money. And I think that's where you get the most for that fight if that fight happens. Well, suppose the rumors are that it will be in Osaka that September show. So if that's what they're going to work for, yeah, that's definitely the time to do it. And also, with the, yeah. that, by the way, that Koji fight with Takaru is one. It was absolutely awesome, and maybe was the toughest uh, challenge for Takaru that I could think of in recent memory. Yeah, Koji gave him a, a, a good fight. Uh, Koji's huge for sixty kg. He's massive. He was clearly bigger than Takaru in there. He's super durable. Like, the guy can just take a ridiculous punch. I mean, he got knocked down, I think, early by Takaru, but it was yeah. a total flash knockdown. And they ended the fight in the third round just absolutely slogging at each other. And Koji was in there with one of the biggest punches in the sport of kickboxing. And he was, uh, he certainly wasn't winning the fight, but he was, he was, he was giving a good account of himself. And he wasn't, he wasn't backing down at all. So, yeah, Koji's legit, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, enough t- Tiger hate. We got to talk about something positive. And it was this next fight. Uh, 145 pound featherweight match. Yutaka Saito, the Shuto featherweight champion, absolutely murdered Kazumasa Majima in with one of the most brutal stoppages I I can recall in Ryzen in recent Ryzen history. Saito is now 18 to 4. Uh, Majima, first time he's ever finished been finished in MMA matches, now 14 and 2. And the soccer kicks at Saito just and knees to the head of Majima. It was it, this is definitely one of the top five knockouts in Ryzen history. This is probably I'm trying to think of like the other one any non tension finish, you know, I would include maybe uh when uh Jiri absolutely f- totally fucked up Albrechtson and Albrechtson was just bleeding all over the place. And uh Johnny the three Johnny Case matches uh with uh I'll, I'll actually, I'll just put it in one, uh, the Johnny Case match with uh, Kitawoka, where Kitawoka had to be stretched out. Uh, Luke, what did you think of this finish, what, and what were your impressions of Saito and Majima? Yeah, um, loved this fight. We loved this one going in, though. We knew this was going to be one of the best fights on the card, mm-hmm. because it, both guys were so legit and proven in their regional circuits, and it was so evenly matched. And it absolutely delivered. I mean, I think we saw a bit of um, what we knew going in. We knew that Majima was the grappler. He was very smothering. He was aggressive. He closed distance. He got a takedown. He controlled position for the majority of the first round after he secured that. And then we saw what Saito did in the second round, which was take advantage of Majima's one-dimensional nature by punishing a sloppy takedown attempt from the outside with, uh, oh. yeah, the old push down the head and then... then kick in the face. <laughs> the old push yeah, down kick in the boot, face. Boot him like he's a, he's a football, and it was fantastic. I mean... Just a great finish. Just I love the brutality of it. I love how, love how how, how clear the sound was in, in the PR arena. Oh. You know, because I mean the rising ring is already mic'd up very very well yeah. for that. And then because it was so quiet anyway, 
it was just fantastic. Um, good for Saito, comeback win after a tough first round against an opponent that had a really, really good record and a strong reputation. Um, yeah, really could not be. And I hope we see Majima back as well, and I think we will, to be honest with you, because he showed his level in there mm. um, by being so successful in that first round with the grappling. I think we'll see Majima back for sure. I think we'll see Saito back in a big fight with Mikuru Asakura, which is a really, really good fight at, um, at featherweight. Um, yeah, I love it. It absolutely paid off. And best case scenario, I think, for Ryzen in, in every single way, and for us too, we get a new contender for maybe the biggest name and most exciting name that they have right now in MMA. And we also have a totally legit name in this new division that they're trying to establish who can also go in there and fight. I mean, just basically whoever they want to bring in. Um, what, so uh, out of, there was a number, we had all the 145 uh, fights uh, through uh, Ryzen 22 and Ryzen 23. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, as we talked about Aoi Boku, and then uh, the day before, oops, excuse me, uh, let me get that, that card up because uh, I didn't write it down on the uh, show notes here. Uh, we had the fight uh, between uh, Oseki and Kanda, and also Hagiwara and Shirakawa as well. Um, who was the most impressive out of these four, out of these number of uh, featherweight fights? And oh, which fighter is the one that you def that you would say, okay, book this guy against Mikuru next? I think you kind of just get the answer, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, because this, this fight was so highly positioned on the card, which I think we all took note of in our preview show, as something that was really odd. Two rising debutants being the third fight from the top hardly ever happens. And of course, both guys being such, um, like having such like respected and, and, and credible uh, tenure in, in regional promotions anyway, I think these two were definitely the clay contenders out of the whole, the whole crop of featherweights here. Um, so definitely Saito, I think, has come out on top with how resounding and just fantastic his finish was here. Majima's definitely right behind him because he showed how successful he could be against him. And he has a very, very good, um, like, smothering top control style. Um, I think even though uh, Kanda got knocked out by Tetsuya Seiki, I think in the first round, he showed, I think, even more than Majima a dominant grappling style because he mounted Seiki had an arm wrapped behind him and was throwing knees at his head when he was trying to get up. Really, really impressed me just with how quickly he advanced position and was able to start inflicting damage. And also, I found out um, after the fact, because he um, he gassed out and got knocked out in the second yeah. round, he actually took this fight on very, very short notice. So if he wasn't in shape to go full three rounds, and that's uh, I think that's a very um, commendable thing to do. And I think that makes that very forgivable how that fight ended for him. So, so although he got knocked out by Tetsuya, I think Kanda is maybe got a bigger future in the sport. He's got a far more slim record than him, so he's much less experienced. Um, and I think going forward, he showed, he showed some real potential there with his, with his takedown, his grappling in the first round. Um, is he going to get brought back? I doubt it. I think he'll go back deep just because he is so inexperienced still in his career. He still has to develop a bit more, I think. Um, but as far as the, the featherweights that we saw on both shows... Definitely these two right here on this Ryzen 23 card. These two are the top two, I think, by by good distance. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see them both come back. I think Saito's going to go right into that Mikuru fight, and that's a huge fight. Well, I think whatever whatever cards that on, that will be the main event. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about that because I have some posts. Well, uh, during the fight comments uh, and post-fight comments, and this is from uh, El first the uh, Mikuru's comments. So after the fight, uh, Saito got on the microphone. And uh, this is what basically happened. Uh, this is from LJ at 4th Avenue 520. Uh, Mikuru on commentaries uh, 
said that he uh, he called Saito out first, and then Saito's response was, "If the timing's right, I'm happy to do it." And then Mikuru nodded, and then in the post-fight uh, post-fight uh, uh, presser with Saito, he said, "If he Mikuru wants to do it, I'll fight him, but I'm not the one calling him out." And this is from also B-Sapu at B-Sapu 1 uh, from Sakaki Bara said he wants to schedule a featherweight title fight involving Mikuru and is looking for a foreign challenger. And he says he doesn't think Saito should get a title shot after one win. So I want to get your thoughts on both those, uh, Luke, uh, about uh, Mikuru calling out Saito, but Saito not calling out Mikuru, and then Sakaki Bara basically saying Saito shouldn't Fight, get a title shot after one win. Um, okay, so the title shot thing, I mean, I don't know. The title doesn't exist right now, so it's on the promoter's decision to put that title on the fight. I don't know if that's exactly what they want to do, guaranteed for Mikuru's next fight. Whatever happens, he's fighting for the vacant featherweight title. Maybe they do that, maybe they don't. Maybe the stand, that's the standard that Sakaki Bara's just set. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. Um, I guess Saito is covering himself because I do know as far as in Japan fighters can get criticized so easily there for doing call outs and it's seen as kind of disrespectful in a lot it's of happened cases, to Ryzen 4. Uh, yeah it's happened to Ryzen 4 where fighters um, I'm trying to remember who it was um, I'm trying to remember but yeah, I know that happened in, um, oh yeah no Jay Kuhn Jay Kuhn said he got in trouble for calling out uh, uh, a fighter uh, during the press fight comments he told us that, that yeah he, he got a uh, licking you know don't do that yeah, so there's a lot of pressure there, I think, from a lot of different areas, from the fan base and, and a lot of different things that can play on a fighter's mind when they call a guy out and then, for whatever reason, people have a backlash to him. I, I mean, I remember when Tiger, you know, had that draw against Kento and, and he was asked by the Rising Confessions people about fighting tension. He was he was almost uh, affronted by the fact that they would even bring that up because he, as far as he saw it, he was so far below that kind of station to even issue that call out at that time. So it's not taken lightly. It's not something that I think people just do um, arbitrarily just to get their name out there. It's taken pretty seriously if you're going to say somebody's name. So I can see that's why Saito might be covering himself there. Even though, logically, in the rising featherweight division, there's no other fight that should happen right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't see a foreigner... If, it depends when Mikuru's fighting next. If he's fighting next at the end of September, it's got to be this fight. If he's fighting next in December, hopefully by then there's a bit more flexibility with who they can bring in. Any idea, let's say they do uh, the Mikuru fight in December, any particular foreign uh, foreign challengers you think would be a good uh, fight for him? Um, the only ones that I think are potential are ones from Bellator. And if they're based, I would basically look at those as being the cast-offs from their Grand Prix, so the people that have already been eliminated. So guys like um, Adam Boric mm -hmm. is a name that I would say. Um, I think he would be a really good match just because of his, he's, he's got um, an exciting, um, aggressive style. He's a finisher by nature. That's not how his last fight went, but he isn't known as being a boring fighter. And he has a very good record as well. So I think that would be a guy that would be good to bring over. But as far as international guys from Mikuru, if they're not bringing over a guy from Bellator, I don't think they're fighting, finding anybody that's any good, to be honest with you, as a free agent. Uh-huh. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree. Mikuru's at a level where he'll just... He just will. I mean, I won't say that he would that he would destroy Saito, but I mean, in terms of the others, I think you know you put them against Mikuru. I think he goes through all of them. Saito is the only one 
I think that gives any sort of challenge to Miku at this point. Yeah, that's why I'm happy that he beat Majima because Majima's just a pure grappler. And even if Majima beat Saito and proved himself that he was at that level, I think it's, it's very difficult to see grapplers beating Mikuru right now. His takedown defense is so good and his wrestling is so good. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm much more happy that a guy like Saito, who's way more of an all-rounder striker, mm-hmm. I think that's stylistically a much more interesting fight, even though Mikuru is a sizable favorite. And I think Mikuru would be a sizable favorite over the other guy who we talked about, uh, Isao Kobayashi, yeah. the king of pound crazy featherweight, who's also a bit of a grappler. Um, I think Mikuru is a big favorite over both those guys. Both those guys are legit, and I think they've both earned that opportunity to have a big fight on, on, a, on a main event, on a rising show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Saito especially. I think he's going to get it. You know, with all everything that they're all saying, um, what Sakura Kabara was saying about the title thing, that's fine, but I don't think anybody really expressly asked for this fight to be for a title anyway. I don't think that's really necessary for this fight to mean, mean something. I think it means something already. I don't think Mikuru needs a title. He's already a monster star already from his own, from all the shows, before the fights he's done on Rising, the huge fight with Yusuke Yachi they had, which filled, almost filled Saitama, you know, just by themselves. Didn't need a belt for that. I don't think they need a belt for this either. What about those, since Yukai is champion now, do you, you get, you have the two brothers of champions. You know, that's something, uh, I don't know, I think yeah. that's something, I think, you know, I think, I think Ryzen initially wanted, hope, we're hoping Miyu and Ursan would go to that level. Imagine a mother and son uh, in a uh, champions in, in their promotion, but now they can do with uh, if Mikuru wins, you have Kai and Mikuru both. Uh, yeah, you have it's kind of like kind of what the Diaz's could never achieve together, but what they did individually. As far as I know, yeah, I don't think they were ever champions in the same promotion ever together, as far as I can remember. No, they weren't. I mean, I don't think Nate's actually won any kind of uh, major title ever. I mean, I know Nick won the WEC, the Elite XC, and the Strike Force Worldweight titles, but. Yeah, um, I think that's exactly what they want long-term, 100%. I think that's just a very good sell. Mm-hmm. Like, to say that, yes, we have a star, we have Mikuru, or we have a star, we have Kai, I think it's a stronger sell when you have the Asakura brothers, and they're both champions. That's such a, an instantly kind of, it's a, such a memorable duo to have as your promotion's talismans that you didn't take from a big other promotion like a K1 or a UFC. You took them from a very very low level uh, skill wise and commercial wise promotion in the outsider and you basically built them up from from very green rookies to polished totally world class level fighters and superstars mm-hmm. and I think that's exactly what they want long term so I think I think Mikuru getting a, uh, them being a featherweight title and him, him getting that I think that's going to happen I don't know if it has to happen with the Saito fight immediately if it does or it doesn't doesn't change the way I look at it for me that's just a really good fight would- would you prefer a Grand Prix for the title or just Mikuru versus Saito, whoever, for a title? Oh, I'd love a Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. It's always just, it's always exciting. If, if they can make it, if they can bring in enough talent that makes it worthwhile and interesting, and they do a Grand Prix, if they do two December shows, 29th and the 31st, um, yeah, man. All about that. All about that. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, what about Saito? If they don't, if he's not given the Mikuru fight, what do you do? You maybe hold him off until they uh, until a Grand Prix? Because I feel like he has so much momentum that I don't. That if you put him up against you know someone like Tetsuya Seki who lost, who I mean, excuse me, who won yesterday, you know, I think he goes through Seki as well. You know, I don't think would you want to risk that position that that he's a, that 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 what he's achieved already in Ryzen with this one show. I don't know. Do you do you just hold off to have him? Until the, until they're ready to have him versus Mikuru. Well, it seems um, that's 
I'd be I'd be actually totally okay with him fight, fighting Seki. Um, because I would make him as a clear favourite in that fight, and I think that's also a good fight. That'll be an action fight because Seki's a striker, he's a banger, as we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I think stylistically, that's a very fun matchup, and it's something that if, if Saito wants to be established clearer as a rising property now, um, I think that's totally logical. I'd like to see that, you know, if they're going to push the Mikuru fight to the end of the year rather than pull the trigger on it in September. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to it for sure. Okay, and with this co-main event, uh, there's a. Uh... You know, we might have a future challenger already, um, seeing how if depending on how things go in the year. And in this fight, uh, Yuki Matoya, uh, guillotine choke submitted, Mamoru Yoi full swing, two minutes nineteen seconds into round three. Matoya is now twenty five and eight, full swing twenty two and nine. Um, I think yeah, we kind of, this is how the fight kind of expected to go. Uh, though yeah, you talked I you mentioned before about Matoya's pace. What do you think about he was a much his, his pace seemed, he definitely seemed a lot more deliberate. Do you think that was an account of the last two fights that he had? Well, I mean, he lost the Apache Mix fight, and then he lost the, uh, the uh, Ogikubo fight. Do you think that uh, on account of those two fights, he was just a little bit more deliberate in his pace with his fights? Yeah, I think he knew he was in there with like a puncher, a really, really serious puncher, and he just took his time. And I think he knew that he always had that grappling edge there. If he wanted it, he could take it. And then as we saw in the third round after he, I guess, realized that... I mean, I don't really know exactly what his mental process was like in his fight. So he's, uh, Matoya's kind of a hard guy to read in that way because, as we all knew going in, he had such a huge edge in one area of the fight and he was so reluctant to take it there until the very end of which he took it there and almost immediately finished. Well, actually, no, I tell a lie. That's not what happened because he it was Matoya putting pressure on full swing and full swing shot an ill-advised yes. desperation takedown, yeah. which is exactly what happened in the Mizuki Furusei and Kana Asakura fight. Oh, yes. Mizuki Furusei doing all right on the feet, having as giving as good as she got, and then Kana Asakura presses the ropes. Mizuki Furusei shoots a takedown, the you know classic rookie mistake, and, yeah, gets turned into a grappling exchange that she loses, and it's exactly the exact same thing happened here. So, um, uh, Matoya was building up the pressure, putting more on as the fight was going, um, put, put full swing it in a bad position on the ropes in the third round, Full swing does the exact thing that you shouldn't do if you're if you're facing a grappler who's putting pressure on you and that's shooting a takedown on them because you're just doing what they're trying to do to you. You just kind of you put yourself in check, if you will. Um, and yeah, I, that neck was there and, and Matoya took it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, it wasn't wasn't the most entertaining action-packed fight because it was kind of slow paced and there was a lot of two guys looking at each other. But I enjoyed it for what it was, just because I enjoy watching Matoya's very. Um, kind of, you know, idiosyncratic, weird, put-together, improvised style, which makes a lot of sense when, as we talked about, he doesn't really have a, a home gym or a real kind of head coach that's molded him. He's a, he's a bit of a nomad, mm-hmm. and I, I enjoy that. He's kind of figured his own way around this. Oh, absolutely. Um, what about full swing? Um, what do you do with him now? I'm going to guess they'll bring him back. You know, regardless that he lost, he's an exciting fighter, uh, win or lose. Uh, what do you do with him uh, and his uh, with another uh, his next opponent? You got any uh, any potential matchups? Oh boy! So I mean, I guess this fight being in so pr- such close proximity to the main event would suggest that you'd want to put Matoya in there with Kai Asakura. I like Yuki Matoya, so I would not want him to be put in there with Kai Asakura anytime soon, because that fight only ends one way. As durable as Matoya is, 
I think we're just going to see how much punishment he can take against, you know, a, a savage, accurate uh, combination puncher, power puncher. I don't know if I want to see that. Um, but Matoya going forward, that's interesting. There are a lot of options for him because this division is so stacked. Mm-hmm. I would be... And uh, also, think, keep in mind, you know, we don't know what the future if about the foreigners, so I'm also considering, you know, that, you know, who who's in Japan that they could do. Um, that, yeah, as of right now, I'm looking at it as just Japanese matchups. That's the way that these two cards have been booked. That's the way the September card, if it, if it goes ahead, is going to be booked. That's just the future, uh, the near future that I'm, I'm working with, just so it keeps it simple for me. Because obviously we could hypothetically extend our reach out across the world. And Ryzen's known for bringing people in from totally oh. far-flung exotic locations out of left, left, left field. And we could be here all day talking about as that. Soon as, as soon as the, 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 the borders in Moldavia open up, I guarantee we're going to have a fighter from Moldavia. Absolutely, yeah. We'll see. We'll see guys from. We'll see guys from Tibet. We'll see guys from South Africa, all over the shop. I'm, I'm sure. But as as far as just right now, I'll keep it for my um, speculation. I'll keep it just strictly on the on the guys that are immediately available. So for Yuki Matoya, I mean, Noki Inoue called out Ishiwatari. Ishiwatari's injured. That fight can't happen now. I'd love to see Matoya and Noki Inoue fight because mm-hmm. you would see Noki Inoue, who's a grappler by nature. Uh, have to go in there with a really, really skilled grappler, and we'd see. I think we'd see some really, really great I think um, exchanges on the floor in that fight. I'd love that. Also made more compelling by the fact that Inoue submitted Shudo Watanabe. I think that the way he won as well, it's a big what if fight since they both submitted their respective opponents. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I like seeing two people whose wheelhouses are so similar like that match off. And then we get to see, you know, who's really, really the big dog. Yeah. I'd like that. Um, it's two guys that won fights. Obviously, you know, Inoue went for one fight that's not going to be available for quite a while. But this one seems like it books itself. I'd love to see it at the end of September because, you know, let's get these... Neither of these guys has, has basically fought this year at all. So let's get these guys active. Let's get these guys out there again. Let's make it happen. I'd love, I'd love to see that one. I think that one, uh, similar to Shinryu and Sawamoto, that one almost books itself because it's so logical. Mm-hmm. What about with Full Swing? Uh, what would you do with him uh, in a future fight? Yeah, um, I mean, I talked about earlier how I would like to have had Kintaro on this card fighting Full Swing. I think even though Full Swing lost, we can have Kintaro on the next card fighting Full Swing, to be honest with you. I still think that fight has its feel mm. as, a, as a very aggressive action fighter going against a pure power puncher. I think that's going to be a lot of fun regardless of what happens, even though um, Full Swing lost here. Because he lost, but yeah, he was a massive underdog anyway. He was kind of already going to lose, and we all knew that. Um, it was very, very hard ask for a guy like him to go in there against Matoya and say, basically, well, your only way to win here is to knock him out. A guy who's basically only been knocked out one time by a guy who slammed him on his head and missed weight to do it. So it was a very, very tough spot. Um, I don't think Full Swing really loses all that much cred going in there against a guy who's, who's so legit like Matoya. So I'd, I'd love to see Full Swing and Kintaro if that Ryzen show happens in Osaka, Kintaro's a big star in Osaka. That's a really, really exciting matchup. Yeah, his uh, his Ryzen post-fight when he uh, had his show in Ryzen, uh, his match, I should say. Uh, his yeah. his YouTube uh, the YouTube interview that they that they used to do with all the fighters. I I didn't see them yeah. do it this time. Yeah, his is I think it, his has the most or second or third most views next to. Uh, I think it was Tension. Uh, yeah, this was for the Ryzen 20 show. Obviously, Tension had the most, and then Kintaro, I think, was second or third. 
yeah, that I think speaks volumes. I mean, I seem to remember just being shocked by how many views that was getting. Yeah. Um, on, on the account, I'm not sure if I, I uh, my memory could be completely off here. My memory was that that fight was on the undercard of, of Mikaru against Salas in the Hamimatsu show. Was it really that? Oh my god! I, have to, I, I, I don't know. I'm just because I, I remember thinking, "Wow, he's got the most views of anyone except Mikaru." That's what I remember. Oh, maybe that's who I'm thinking of. I'm getting the two. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um. So, but um, if you can't get, I think, I think that what it says is that shows how legit Kintaro's appeal is to people. He's really, really popular, and um, whoever he's put with, I think, I think Rising, you know, because he's got that innate star quality to him already, and already has a fan base on a YouTube channel. I think Rising will want to be working him with matchups like Full Swing, who are you know action fighters who are going to stand and bang. So I think that works in everybody's benefit, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially in Osaka, where Kintaro is from, and I think they want to do a, a big show there with Koji and, and Reina and all these local stars. I think he, he fits right into that bill. Yes, you are correct. It was Ryzen 21, um, the one with Mikuru and Salas. Um, and with that, with the main event, we finally have a new Bantamweight champion. Uh, Kai Izakura defeated Hiromasa Ogikubo is... Is now Azakura is now fifteen and two. Okikubo is now twenty and five, and he defeated him in the first round with a brutal soccer kick, uh, four minutes thirty one seconds. And uh, so Azakura, you know, defeats Horiguchi in a non tile match. Looks like they're gonna do a tile match down down the line. Doesn't happen. Instead, he fights Cape, loses a Cape uh, and for the vacant title. Cape leaves. Cape now uh, is in USC. He gets another chance. Finally, his champion. Uh, I know we are all pulling for Ogikubo, but, you know, I'm also happy that Asakura won. What do you think, uh, Luke? Yeah, I mean, because Asakura said after the fight, if he, he lost, he was going to consider retirement, which would have been really, really sad, considering how young he is and what a talent he is. Um, yeah, his performance here, all the criticisms that I had about him from the Manel Cape fight and how he just seemed to be just not progressing technically enough and leaning too much on his power. He's clearly been doing his homework. He's clearly been in the gym, grinding, um, improving his boxing because it looked so, so clean and so, so sharp in this fight. Definitely the best I've ever seen him throw punches technically. The way he was placing them, the way he was like using the jab to set up body shots or set up a straight right to the head. I mean, just really, really technical, polished, composed work. Fearsome power, obviously. He's always carried power. But now he's really just dispensing it in such an accurate and clinical way. It's scary to watch. And I think, in addition, what I'm seeing from him here is not only fight technically in, in a better way, but stylistically he seems to have a much clearer idea of what his strengths are. So in this fight, compared to the Menel Cape fight, he was just on the front foot the entire time walking Ojukubo down. He was pressing him. He was, knew he was the bigger guy. He was being the bully. Oh, the size difference. When they, you know, oh, when yeah. they come to the ring, I was just like... I, I know that Azakura is tall, but comparative to Ogikuba, I was just like, oh my god, I didn't, that size difference was was, was so, was just so stark when you see them next to each other. Yeah, it was very, very pronounced. I mean, Azakura posted a, a, a picture on his social media fight week of when he was in his weight cut and he looked like a skeleton. He's sucking every ounce of water out of his body to get down to 135, whereas Ojikubo's a guy, I think, uh, I think we all know he can make 125, no problem. Yeah. So they are essentially got a flyweight fighting a bantamweight at bantamweight so in, in, in a physical sense there's a very big um, gap between them and obviously you need to take that into account when you're evaluating performance we don't want to like overpraise Kaisaka for being a guy who is a weight class beneath him however 
the technical improvements and adjustments that we saw Kai make are super impressive, irrespective of that fact, as is the complete stylistic overall that we've seen from his game now, and him turning into, at least in this fight, a pure pressure fighter. You know, yeah. in this fight, he kind of reminded me in a lot of ways in the way that Conor McGregor fought Chad Mendes. Yeah. Just fighting a guy who you know is going to be dangerous in short range and wants to explode out of that tight guard and just using your size and your height and your reach and just taking all the space away from them and not giving them a moment to breathe, hitting against the body, just being just a really prototypical but sharp and smart bully, the bully fighter art type. It's a very legit type uh, to work with. I think it, I think it suits Kaisaku at his weight class and with, with his skills, him being just a pure puncher who's, you know, um, being very, very sharp and nice with the way that he's, he's attacking the body and attacking the head. Um, just the, like the, the kind of like pouring jab feint to hit that uppercut, which really ended the fight before the, uh, before the soccer kick came in. Uh, just a gorgeously uh, thrown and placed shot. Just really, really nice work. He's clearly been uh, taking um, Takashi Uchiyama's advice to heart. Uchiyama, who basically told him that his form and his, his technique was terrible as far as boxing was concerned, and he had to work on that, and he's clearly done that considerably. Um, so yeah, full marks for his performance. He looked absolutely fantastic in a very high-pressure situation. If he'd lost, I mean, where would his career have gone from then? It would have been would have been real disaster for him. Um, I was rooting for Ojukubo hard in this fight. I don't mm. think Ojukubo's performance in this fight was terrible. I think under the circumstances against the opponent that he was in there with, who was capable of what he executed, I think Ojukubo performed admirably. I mean, the first exchange in the fight, Ojukubo lands a clean left hook on the counter mm. at the end of the exchange. And he was also landing some really, really nice body kicks, clean body, body kicks with a front leg. Um, I just think Ojukubo was in there with a guy who had just a range and a command of firepower over him. And also defensive grappling, which, which we talked about going in, which is the Mikura, which is the Asakura secret weapon, is to wrestle these guys is just almost not an option against them because their wrestling is so, so good and nobody notices it. Um, when Ojukubo tried that single leg and Asakura just shot it down immediately, it was like, yeah, this is this guy's a real, real problem and he's so dangerous. But also, even, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I think even though he got blown out of there, I think Ojukubo performed really, really well uh, regardless of that. He looked like he... he his technical tools, even though it was the moments of success he had were, were fleeting and brief, I think we saw exactly why he's so good. In a matchup that's as hard as this, he was still able to find things that worked for him, even though he lost the fight. This is actually the first time, well, should I say the first time, but since 2013 was the last time that Ogi Kubo was finished, and that, and guess, of all people who finished him, was Kyoji Horiguchi by submission. So, yeah. 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 So I figured he's that... Only, he only loses to just absolute I figured that that if this fight was going to be a finished uh, win, it would definitely go to uh, Azakura. But if it was going to go all three rounds, I was going to favor uh, Ogi Kubo just because he's a very durable guy. Um, so, I mean, looks like that Ryzen wants to do a, for New Year's Eve, Yoji Azakura 2. Is that the fight you try to make or do you go a different route? Um, no, that's, yeah, absolutely the fight to make. Um, I think that's New Year's Eve main event just wrapped up immediately. I think that's absolutely, outside of tension and, and Takaru, maybe, but obviously probably not going to fight, that is the New Year's Eve main event. I don't think there's a bigger fight that Ryzen has to put on right now. I don't think there's any problem with, with leaving it until then. Um, is coming back from, like, a long injury layoff. You know, give him time to recoup. Honestly, wouldn't be opposed if Horiguchi had a fight on the end of September show either. Get him in there with with a, with a with a name action fighter that he can he can 
get out there and, and kind of shake the cobwebs off and, and, and knock off some of that ring rust. I'd be I'd be cool if he was in there with a guy like Kentaro, you know, just a, just a, an action fighter with a name. Doesn't have to be the highest level challenger because you're obviously looking towards a very very major main event on New Year's Eve with these two guys. Um, yeah, that's where that's where all uh, everything is headed towards that fight. I think not only for the bantamweight division, not only for the t- these two guys, but for the promotion generally. Um, that's the most major thing on the horizon, and everything I think we're going to see now is going to be set up to put the momentum and the trajectory towards that for New Year's Eve. Um, I don't think Isaacer is going to fight in the interim. He doesn't have to. I would. Li- I don't think probably Haraguchi won't either. But I would like to see him just because before a rematch of this caliber, I would like to see him get out there and just get a fight in just to uh, kind of, you know, get his body back fully into fight shape and get through a camp and then prepare specifically for the fight in December. Because if he fights in September, you've still got um, three months there to bring your body back down to baseline and then prepare specifically for a very dangerous opponent. I would like to see that. That's best case scenario. Um, my problem, yeah, though... That fight's happening on, on, on New Year's Eve. My problem is if, if, if either fight Kyoji or... I'll, I'll be more like if put a tie... Listen, I'm tired of these non-title matches. They put too much risk for your champions to be in. Uh, I know they don't have to do it with a massive weight cut. You know, it's usually at a catch weight. But listen, I don't know if we would be if the random weight division would have gone the way it has had Kyoji not had that five Kai and then gotten injured. Because uh, that that he was more or less begged by Ryzen to do that fight uh, against his wishes, and then he had the ACL tear, as you said. So my hope is is that they don't do any more non-title matches. With their with their champions because it offers nothing. It's if you you put your champion at risk for injury and then then they they just get a, a, a padded record most of the time. What do you think about doing away with all these uh, non-title matches, Luke? I agree. I'll play devil's advocate and I will say that they give Rise in the capability of booking their champions with more freedom and more regularly than if they are tied to every fight having the scale and importance and competitive worth of a title fight. That's why, that's all, I'm not necessarily defending the practice or putting all my my worth behind it, but I do think it has a certain upside and that's it. So that's like, Yoji Horiguchi can beat Darian Caldwell for the Bantamweight title on New Year's Eve in 2018, right? And on, I believe in April, he can fight Ben Wynn as a stay busy fight before the rematch in June. That Ben Wynn fight was a non-title fight, and if you made it a title fight, is Ben Wynn worthy of fighting for the championship, being brought in just to just to give Horiguchi a fight like that? I don't know. I don't know if that's the direction. Maybe you want to go down and you want to make, if your champion's active, fighting anybody in your promotion, that's a title fight. I think that it's two different schools of thought, you know, and I totally agree with you in that the Bantamweight division is now, only now getting back, on, back onto track since it was thrown off in... July, August of 2019, when Kaya Sakura upset Horiguchi. So maybe, yeah, I, I think, I think I, I mostly agree with what you're saying there, and, and there are ways in which you get hurt badly as a, as a promotion um, through it. I think probably the most, one of the major ones in Pride was uh, Takanori Gomi losing to um, Marcus Aurelio right after he won the title in the 2005 tournament, and them having to kind of book their way around to get a rematch between the two of them and it's just yeah it slows things down and it makes things awkward where you have guys that are you have to promote as champions but aren't seen as them so yeah it, you can definitely end up hurting yourself in that way but but as we said luckily i think it's very very unlikely that kai Sakura fights anybody between now and horiguchi on new year's eve for me the only question mark is who does horiguchi fight 
Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I, well, here's the thing I like Deep does. So Deep, uh, they're uh, they're a uh, strawweight champion, uh, Haru Ochi. Uh, he in between uh, his, his he had a grappling match instead with uh, Makoto Shinryu, and now he's going to be defending. Uh, Shin, uh, Ochi's going to be defending the title at the next Deep show. Um, I believe it's next month. Deep ninety seven, I believe it is. No, excuse me, Deep ninety six, I, uh, I believe it is. So I have no problem if they want to put him in a non MMA setting. The problem is, is just. I just feel like it puts so much unnecessary risk. Anything can happen during a fight. You know, you just, you know, you 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 roll your ankle the wrong way, and then suddenly, you know, you're gonna you're like, uh, or you get kicked with a leg kick, and you know, you're hopping around one leg like Michael Chandler was against Brad Primus. So that's why I just don't like about the non-title matches. It's just the risk reward. It, the reward is so minimal, other than just getting your champion on a card, and the risk is so high for what it could do. To the fighter and future, your future plans down the line. No, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you there. It's, uh, it's a bit of an archaic practice, isn't it? It's not something that really exists in the West. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that's in, one thing. In MMA yeah. or in boxing. Yeah, like, listen, I know, well, that's where you know, I'll say, you know, I like that UFC doesn't do that. Uh, I know they have an interim championship problem, but uh, that's something else. But. Yeah, when I feel like the champions are there to defend, not to not defend. Uh, it it it's I don't. It, it just yeah. it's it, yeah you know in boxing you know that doesn't happen as well you know, um, American boxing. It's just it's just a thing that I just it doesn't it. I don't agree with it, and it, the the the, the weight thing kind of worked out in a way, but you just never know like if you. Let's say, you know, Kyoji Horiguchi beats Kai Zakura, you know, that, that alternate timeline in that non-title match. Are we even talking about uh, this match? Is this match? Does this match have even happened with uh, Kai Zakura being the new champion? I don't know. It's a... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it worked out in a, in a roundabout way, but I think that's much more rare uh, than usually, ha- than what can potentially happen. Um, so overall thoughts on Ryzen 23, uh, Luke. You had a favorite fight of the night uh, and uh, favorite performances, finishes uh, that you like to mention. Oh, um, overall, overall rating on the card, it's yeah, it's two thumbs up from me. Um, I think there were a couple of bad spots, but they're so vastly outweighed by the really, really good spots. Um, in particular, would be um, you know Makati Shinru and Seichiro's fight. That's the fight of the night for me. It was just so dynamic seeing those two guys go through like grappling transitions together, and it had, for my money, on on a card which had some fantastic finishes, had the finish of the night as well, and I think probably one of the most gifable moments in the sport all of this year. So, definitely a star-making performance for Shinryu in that fight. Great fight as well. Salmoto definitely showed out in his fight as well with with the big knockout. Um, I want to say Saito as well. Put himself right up there and made made a real real statement in his featherweight fight with one of the one of the most brutal and best rising um, knockouts that we've ever seen. And then of course in your main event, um, of course I love my man Ojukubo. He's going to be back because he's just so good and so skilled, and his the depth of skill that he has, I think, is going to carry him. Even though he's at a pretty advanced age and has just got knocked out, I think I think his his future is still absolutely legit at uh, bantamweight or at flyweight and rising. But Kai Asakura, I think writing the wrong of New Year's Eve and really putting on a, a polished, technical, and composed performance 
like I wasn't sure he was going to be able to do. He really impressed me because I I was in two minds of how he was going to how he was going to look here, and he looked um, he looked flawless. Yeah, uh, I'd agree that Fire Knights had to be Ito Shinryu. It was just it, it was like an action movie. It was like an action movie, and just everything they were doing was such a high technical level, and just was what just wowed me. Everything they did, there was not one. It, they did not take one breather during that entire match. You know, there wasn't a case of, of, of taking it slow. There may have been time, uh, moments where they're thinking the next move, but the, the there was no lack of action. Everything was, everything was moving forward in that match. And, yeah, listen, fine guillotine. That is a submission. That is a, a, a submission of the year. Unfortunately, I think it's going to get... Uh, forgotten. You know, not necessarily just because uh, UFC tends to uh, give credence, get credence over every other promotion. But I think also just because it just happened, you know, in August. You know, you tend to see things get get more uh, recognition when they happen later in the year, unless it's like some out of this world uh, type of uh, submission or knockout. And yeah, Saito. Listen, I love me soccer kicks and knees to the head. Why UFC does not, why the Nevada State of Life Commission do not allow at least knees to the head? I'll even, I'll, I'll, I'll give them the soccer kicks, but knees to the head, just, I don't, I'll, it's something I'll never understand about Western MMA, is just why that is not allowed at all. It's, 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 it makes no sense. It's, if anything's archaic, that's incredibly archaic. Yeah, I think it's just, yeah, it's a very, um, the mentality that gives rise to that is just one of, uh, the kind of mentality that had, um, you know, MMA banned in the first place. Oh, it's too dangerous. You can't let two people do this to each other. You know, it's that, it's that idea. Um, yeah, it's totally silly and it's a totally legitimate area and technique technically, which really changes the dimensions of a lot of grappling exchanges and the whole nature of like the front headlock position that you see happen all the time where takedown gets stuck, um, yeah, we love it here, you know, and it is exclusive here for, for I think, for the foreseeable future. Yes, yeah, exactly. Pride rules are always the best. Um, so, uh, look, that's basically all the topics we have. Um, do you, uh, I guess we can, if you want to give your social media, you don't, I mean, you don't have to, but I know it's kind of people will find you. So if you want to give out, you're more welcome. If not, I'll just move on to the uh, sign-offs. Yeah, people can find me if they want, and they don't have to if they don't want to. <laughs> great, great. And uh, for everybody that is tuning in, you can follow us at We Are Rising Pod uh, on Twitter. We are available on YouTube, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple Podcasts. Who knows what the future will hold for us? If you want to follow Chris uh, Gary, who unfortunately cannot make it for this uh, show, you can follow him at ChrisGary92. And you can follow me. At a Benja one, and uh, as uh, you know, uh, I gotta also say production wise, a plus as well. Lenny Hart, the fireworks, which uh, I don't think that's the one thing. Even if a, a card is disappointing, the VTRs, the the fireworks, just the overall production will at least make the show worth sitting through. Oh, I agree. It's such a it's such a beautiful cinematic um, artistic experience and you're treated to so many kind of fantastic um, audio visual flares and treatments mm. uh, 
Yeah, you just don't get anywhere else. That's that's what's that's part of what makes it special. It's such a unique drug. Mm -hmm. And uh, speaking of Money Heart, we always like to sign off with the uh, the great voice from Pride, New Japan, and now Ryzen with her trademark, We Are Ryzen. Take care, everybody. Thank you again, Luke. We'll definitely be talking in the future. And yeah, everybody, keep those hands up. Protect yourself at all times. And don't get soccer kicked. And wear your masks as well. Mask on. <laughs>